Nerdy City flipped our world upside down and made things stranger with their nostalgic suburban horror game, Remembrance. Then, they made our skin crawl with a game based on the videos so gross and disturbing they were termed nasty with their horrifying tabletop, RPG Nasty. Now they send us back to the Saturday morning cartoons and brightly painted plastic toys we remember from our childhood that were more than met the eye. Commandroids, the first installment of the Radical Shadows universe, puts you in the driver's seat of your very own transforming robot. With a Kickstarter launching in the beginning of August, you can live out the battles between the heroic Symbatrons and the dastardly Nemesites in a world transformed. To be part of this Kickstarter and contribute, please search for Commandroids on Kickstarter or visit NerdyCity.com for more information. Welcome to the lounge. Today I've got a big one for you. From back to my Origins interviews, Rory McLeod. He is the creator of Infinite Galaxies with Grendel's Belt Productions. We talk about Infinite Galaxies. This is a cool game. I've actually got my hands on it, been looking through it, um, been getting ideas. That's what happens. Um, we've got a couple more episodes with this and then may have to take a hiatus, but thanks, Lounge Lizards, for sticking around, being awesome. Really appreciate it. So, yeah. I'll see you on the other side. Here is Rory. So, I am here at Origins with Rory McLeod, the creator of Infinite Galaxies. We've been having a great time hanging out. I yeah. really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, you played in my game. Yeah. I'm hoping to play in yours. Yeah. Um, but tell me tell me about your game. So, Infinite Galaxies is a Power by the Apocalypse um, sci-fi action-adventure game. Mm-hmm. So, whereas a lot of um, Power by the Apocalypse are more tightly focused, more... Um, story-driven, and not that Infinite Galaxies is a story-driven, but it's more about high adventure. It's more about two-fisted action. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a departure for a PBTA game in that in that vein. In addition, um, it is sometimes is, is what I sometimes call bring your own setting. Okay. So the game has an intrinsic setting built into it, but it's very uh, lightly. Uh, part of the rule system. So okay. it's there, and the, really the reason it's there mostly is for some of the choices with the technology that's available. Sure. So for example, if I were playing a Star Wars game, I would have things like lightsabers and Star Destroyers and whatever, right? If I have a Star Trek game, I would have phasers, I would have the, the transporters and all that. Sure. So because there's no licenses or anything for this, right, I have to design it to be as, as setting agnostic as I can. Mm-hmm. So I came up with a setting that uses um, real-world things, so real-world places like Earth and Sol is the star sure. system, and other star systems we know about like Cetus and Sagittarius and all these different places. Um, but I've added aliens, and I've added, you know, whatever. So it's in the future. It has aliens. It has 
robots, lasers, starships, right? And there's a bit of a some technology choices in there just because I had to make some decisions sure. about, you know. But you can easily, if you decide you do want to play Star Trek, you could easily just say there's transporters. It's not going to hurt anything. Yeah. Um, it, it, honestly, most of that stuff is just justification for things happening in the game. Right. Right, you can say we fly down to the planet, or you can say we transport down to the planet. It's not any different, really, in, in terms of unless there's something going to stop you from doing it, right? Right. Um, and if it's going to stop you from doing it, it's going to be like, well, you normally we can transport, but there's, I don't know, a storm There's or interference, yeah. right, right, right. I mean, if you watch the show, you know there's lots of ways to stop them from using the transporter. So, um, but the point is, so, the genesis of this game, um, I just learned a dungeon world, mm -hmm. which I'm sure a lot of your um, audience has probably mm -hmm. heard of, and I just started playing dungeon world, and um, some friends of mine here in Columbus um, had a uh, annual kind of a, a game day that they do, and they were, they're big Star Trek fans, and so they were playing the fastest Star Trek from like 1987, <laughs> which is super clunky, it's a, it's a percentile system, Oh yeah. it's dumb, there's skills for all kinds of stupid crap like basketball and Klingon and like I have a 40% Klingon. What does that mean? Like why well, this is just super wonky? And I was like, I, I came home from that thinking this was a bad experience because of the rule system. It wasn't because the people they were fine, but yeah. I'm like, there's got to be a better way to do this to have a Star Trek experience. This is way before the new Mephitius Star Trek. So oh, there was okay. really a, a legitimate, you know. So at the time, it I was, was Last Unicorn though. Uh, maybe, but that's not what they were playing. But I, they I were played. Oh, oh, I remember FASA. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, 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 just a quick aside. The one thing I remember from the FASA game that we played is that my character was somehow secretly evil. Okay. Um, and that the captain of our ship had a 32% in bowling. <laughs> right. <laughs> Why? Why? Why not 100%? Who cares? Yes. Right. Anyway, so the point was, you know, at the time. I was only familiar with a couple of um, PBTA games, because mm -hmm. this is back in, like, 2014. Okay. There wasn't a ton of them. There was Dungeon World. There was Apocalypse World. At the time, the, I wasn't aware of it, but there was... Um, uh, uh, what's the Cthulhu one? There was... Um, oh, um... Let's add this part out. Yeah. <laughs> ah, um, well. But, uh, anyway. So, there, there's a couple others. Yeah. And none of them were sci-fi games. Mm -hmm. So... I decided, you know what, I can make a hack of this dungeon world for sci-fi. And then they can play their Star Trek game. So originally I was going to call it To Boldly Go, and it was going to be a Star Trek game. Okay. And it was just going to be for them, because I'm not getting a Star Trek license. Yeah. You know. Um, this was prior to the new movies also, so there was kind of a lull in Star Trek in terms of okay. fandom. There were no TV shows, there was nothing happening, but, you know, still there's no way. And so I thought, well, I'll just make it for them. It'll be a fun thing, and they'll be able to have a better time with because they want to play Star Trek, right? Sure. And so I'm like, okay. So I wrote about half of it. I took the basic moves from Dungeon World, and I kind of renamed them to make them more sci-fi-ish because some of them are very pointed towards fantasy. Oh, very much so. Um, and I started working on the equipment. I started working on, you know, I was basically just translating stuff from Dungeon World into sci-fi equivalents. Mm hmm and about halfway through that process, I'm like, you know, there aren't any other sci-fi games, PBTA sci-fi games out there. What if I made a game that was just like a generic sci-fi that you could then bring whatever setting you want? You know, if you wanted to play Dune, there's no Dune RPG that I'm aware of, and if there is, it's way out of print. Um, what if you wanted to play Starship Troopers, or you want to play Firefly, or you wanted to whatever, any, you know, you could 
Cyberpunk if you really wanted to, right? I know sure. there's a Cyberpunk PBTA, but, you know. Um, so I made it sort of a toolkit. So mm -hmm. it, 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 it has sci-fi tropes in it. You know, the playbooks are sci-fi tropes. Um, and you can bring your own setting. Or if you want to use the one that comes with it, you can totally do that too. Mm -hmm. um, and I've done both. So when I've run the game, I have... I normally use Star Patrol, which is the, the default setting. Yeah. But, like, a couple of times I've said, in a, in a longer game, I've said, hey, let's come up with a setting. And there were a couple of times, like, at Games on Demand, where someone said, I want to have a Dune game. And me, yeah. personally, I don't know a ton about Dune, so I was like, well, I, I know enough to get the game started, but I may have questions about certain yeah. things. But it went fine. You know, we don't have a problem with it. But So that's the kind of the idea is that you would bring your own setting if you want to. Mm -hmm. You know, or just have your group make up a new setting. Sure. Say, hey, there's a setting where the robots are in charge yeah. and the humans are, you know, subservient to them. That's fine. Yeah. Or, I mean, there's a million sci-fi mm -hmm. stories out there. You, you're, you're not at a loss for... You could just go through the Isaac Asimov or Amazing Stories or any of those old magazines or novels. And I mean, it's not hard to find an idea for a sci-fi setting. Oh, I mean, there, there's... Uh, there, there, like... There's so many, it almost feels like an infinite amount. Right. But especially when you open that up. You know, yeah. Even, like, I can remember uh, uh, comic books from the 80s that were, like, just as about a random sci-fi setting. Yeah. You know, something yeah. like that. The other night we mentioned uh, Alien Legion. Right. Yeah. Like. But imagine if, let's say you had watched, remember Black Hole? Oh, Disney yeah, yeah. Movie? Let's say you want to do a game based on that. Why not? No problem. In fact, while I was, I, re I recently bought the DVD. And I, my wife had never seen it, so we watched it. And while I was watching it, I was like, you could have an Infinite Galaxies. Totally. You could totally Absolutely. do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I recently interacted with that movie because I took the image of the station yeah, which and was put bad it in, ass, in the, the black hole that they took the picture of. For 1978, it that was, was pretty good. It was cool. I mean, the graphics were pretty good. Yeah. It was all that pre-CGI stuff, of course. But I was re-watching it, and I was like, this is pretty good for 78. Yeah. I mean, right good. after Star Wars. And most studios had not adopted that newer stuff that they were doing. Yeah. Like the modeling and stuff. They hadn't. So this was, uh, was pretty amazing. So. And hands down, like, I've never seen a game of Black Hole. Yeah, but you could. But you could do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I mean, we could totally run that if we wanted to. I love that idea. <laughs> probably, I'd probably have to read up on it again. But, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not hard. I mean, it's, you know. So, anyway, so the point is that... Um, <coughs> If I had to explain the game to somebody, I would tell them that it's a, you know, bring your own setting, mm -hmm. and it's um, powered by the Apocalypse. So if you know the Apocalypse world system, so if you know the 2d6, modify it by an ability, and then you have failure, partial success, complete success, that's it. That's, and once you know that, you're good. There's nothing else about the system that's complicated. I like, I mean, because one of the things that, that I've learned from, from hanging out with game designers is, you know, if you can break it down to, like, three basic phrases, yeah. and you can say, science fiction, bring your own setting, powered by apocalypse, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to get at. Right, right. Yeah. And so that's sometimes in, 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 in screenwriting or, or film industry terms known as the elevator pitch. Yep. So there's actually a section in the book called the elevator pitch. Oh, cool. A little sidebar section, and it talks about how to pitch this game to people. So let's say that you are interested in the game, right? Well, you're going to have to get at least a couple other people to play it. Sure. And a lot of people are resistant to trying new stuff. I mean, I've run into a lot of people that aren't really interested. They, they, they want to play what they're already used to, whatever. So it takes some convincing. Mm -hmm. You may have friends who love trying new stuff, so that's cool. But if you don't, 
here's some bullet points that you can use to try to convince people to try it. Sure. So, yeah, I've already anticipated that um, <laughs> because I've had to do that myself. I mean, this is a brand new game, and yeah. I'm not a known commodity in the game industry. No one's heard of me. So when I did the Kickstarter last year and... You know, previously to that and since then, you know, I have to promote this thing myself. I don't have anybody out there really tooting my horn. I've got to do it myself, which mm -hmm. is not a natural thing for me. I'm not a self-promoter. So um, going on, you know, podcasts and stuff is cool. I didn't do a ton of advertising. I did a little bit. I was on Plus One Forward, okay. which is the gauntlets. Oh, yeah. I was on there. Um, I've done maybe one or two other interviews. Um, a British guy who has a gaming podcast interviewed me at Gen Con. But I just haven't done a ton of interviews just because it's not really my thing. I mean, I... Sure. I'm just not a natural self-promoter. So an opportunity like this is awesome because, you know, this is you're somebody who talks about games all the time. Yeah. Um, obviously open to new games. So, um. I Well, and, and one of the things I always tout this show as, um, I'm sure any regular listeners are tired of me of hearing it. <laughs> but I always say, like, this is just meant to be the chill conversation. Yeah. I'm not trying to ask you a breakdown how you came up with rule number 75. <laughs> right. You know, like, that's not what this is about. This yeah. is about, like, you know, oh, here's the thing you d you're doing. Yeah. Here's why, where it came from, you know, which is which is awesome. Um, and, like, why do you like games? And, yeah. you know, it's just just having a conversation. Yeah. Um, I, I like the idea. I, I think that there's something, and you've, just played in a game that I came up with because I was like, here's a thing I want to do with games, but nobody's doing it the way I, I feel like it should be done yet. Yeah, yeah. Kind of did the same thing. Like yeah. you said, hey, I want to do this in this. And there were, and there, I, at the time I started working on this, now there are other sci fi RPG or uh, PBTA games now, but yeah. there weren't when I started working on sure. it. And um, I will admit, <coughs> I didn't like bust my way through this thing. It took mm -hmm. me four years to get this thing almost done. Yeah, like it, it'll be in print, I think, within a month or two. So okay. it's, I mean, my part's done. The layout's happening, but it, it'll be out soon. But the point is, I didn't just power my way through. That. I could have right. had this thing done two years ago, probably. Sure. But I wasn't in the same life position that I'm in now. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm in a way better position to have done this now mm -hmm. than I was two years ago. Yeah. And so, sometimes the opportunity in life comes, and you take advantage of that. Sometimes you're just not in the right place to do that yet. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the other thing was, I looked at an opportunity. There wasn't another game like this available using this system. Yeah, there were other sci-fi games out there. Sure, there was Traveler, there was Star Hero, I guess you could count that as a, a sci-fi game. There were a couple of things. I mean, like, you could even say, like, GURP Space and everything. Sure, but sure. But those are complicated. That right. Sometimes people just want to jump in and, and do stuff. Like, I could literally take somebody who's never played at all any kind of RPG, which I've done. Mm -hmm. I have I have taught this game to people that had never played anything. And it's easy to explain. I mean, I can explain it in ten minutes and get you playing. And honestly, my uh, approach to teaching people is just start. Let's, let's just start with the characters, mm -hmm. right? You'll learn a lot about it as you make your characters, which is a pretty easy process. And we'll just jump in. Yeah. And if anything happens, I'll explain it. Like, I don't need to sit there. Some people want to spend half an hour explaining a game. And it's just counterproductive because most of that's just going to, until they see it being used, in my experience, mm -hmm. it just doesn't, it doesn't penetrate, right? You've got to just have them do stuff. Yeah. Okay, you're in a spaceship and pirates are, space pirates are shooting at you. What do you want to do? And don't look at the rules. Don't worry about yeah. what, what move am I going to do. Just what do you want to do? You, you've seen enough sci-fi movies. You know that there's guns on these ships. You know there's shields. You know there's, you know. So what do you want to do? Okay, I want to go shoot them. Beautiful. All right, so there's a move in the game called Fire at Will. You, you get on the guns. 
you know, and you, sh you roll dice and you shoot them. I'll tell you how to, how to do all that stuff. And that's, and honestly, once you've done a couple of moves, they're all similar mm -hmm. in, in the sense that you have a trigger, which is when you do X, roll, Yep. And then it tells you what happens. So if you get a complete success, this happens. If you get a partial success, this happens. It never says what happens on a failure because that's the domain of the GM. Right. Which I'll be happy to talk about if you want because that's an interesting piece of this game. It's kind of similar to the thing you... Yo, yeah. It's, yeah. well, I mean, the uh, uh, Chris Chris's, uh, you know, idea with sequence was to take elements that he liked from other things. Yeah, I, I could tell, yeah. And, yeah. and put them together and yeah. it's... I, anybody that I played sequences is like, well, I can see the DNA of like this, this, and this, and I'm like, good, yeah, that's fine. We're there's not nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and my game's not. If you were to look at Dungeon World and my game now, they're yeah. different. Yeah. It, it's not a, and you'll probably see when you play it. It's not a, a port of Dungeon World anymore. It mm -hmm. started that way, mm -hmm. and there are certainly things in the game that you'll look at, like the basic moves are essentially the same basic moves that are in Dungeon World. Okay. They're, they're named differently, and they've been completely reworded because there are wordings in some of the Dungeon World moves that I don't like, sure. I thought people got confused by, or for whatever reason. I've reworded pretty much everything, but the bones are there. It's the same fighting, you know, volley is now shoot, mm -hmm. you know, um, discern realities is now analyze, and I've rewritten the questions. <laughs> of course. I've written the questions you can use, and Spout Lore is now understand, mm -hmm. right? And I've rewritten a little bit of the trigger, but that part's very similar. But there are parts that are quite a bit different. I don't have race. Yeah. Race is not there. Yeah. There's an origin, which kind of works similarly, but it's like you get this little benefit, mm -hmm. right? There's no alignment. That's gone. Um, and because it's unnecessary, <laughs> I think. It's even unnecessary in Dungeon World, to be honest, but... Um, uh, and I have new stuff. So instead of bonds, I have relationships, sure. which work mechanically in the system much differently. They look similar. Mm -hmm. There's like a phrase and there's a space in it for you to write someone's name. That part looks similar. But mechanically, that's part of the XP system now. So you, you're going to use those things in the game. You're going to role play and do actions as your character to trigger those things to have them happen so that you get experience for it. So mm -hmm. there's a mechanical reward for doing it. Plus, hopefully it's fun. Um, so... I've changed quite a bit of stuff, but there are still some things that are similar. So if you play Dungeon World, you could jump into Infinite Galaxies and pretty much know what's going on. Yeah. Somebody will have to explain a few things to you, but it's not, you know. Well, I have this theory, too, that some of the, the what, are, what we call uh, indie games are almost better games to introduce people to the hobby than, like, Dungeons & Dragons, necessarily. Yeah, yeah. And part of it is, so I actually want to talk about how moves work. Because yeah, yeah. It's... My favorite thing about um, about uh, uh, Powered by Apocalypse, it's you're not saying <coughs> I'm going to use this skill in this way, yeah. because that's the, how the rules say. And it's saying I'm going to well, I'm going to try to get in here, maybe like pick these locks or something, yeah. or you know whatever that is. And if you're just telling a story back and forth with somebody, that's how you talk. Yeah, it's just that. The the job of the of the game master in that case is to um, basically say, oh, I'm defining this as this, yeah. and that's how we're going to resolve it. Yeah. And I think that, that that's easier that's easier for people to just sit down and play. Yeah. So the I think the most important lesson that I learned from Power by the Apocalypse games is the power of language. Mm -hmm. 
So when you create a Powered by the Apocalypse game, a, a brand new one, or you're adapting something, you're hacking something, whatever, sure. you have the opportunity when you word things in the game, I'm talking about things that are mechanical things, not like advice chapters and stuff, because those are great, but that's not really what I mean. What I mean is how I word a move as the designer has a big impact on how it's used. So if I have a move about repairing ships and robots, mm -hmm. how I word its trigger and then the outcome, right? So that's kind of the two components of a move, um, has an impact on how people perceive it and how they end up using it in the game. And yeah. it's the power of language. And you really, as a designer of a Power by the Apocalypse game or any kind of a, a, a game that isn't have a laundry list of rules, is you really have to be a wordsmith or at least have a very good command of the English language because you are potentially broadcasting that broadcasting this out to a large group of people who have made different interpretations of certain yeah. phrases, right? And so the power of language is very important here because you say when you so here's the move. I'll break it down for your audience. So a move is anytime you do something in the game that involves some risk or danger. Sure. So it's not every time you do anything. If you're just calling your buddy who's in another ship and there's nothing stopping you, you just say, hey, buddy, how's it going over right. there? Okay, cool. We're, we're good. We're on time. Whatever, whatever. There's no role involved because there's nothing dangerous happening. But if your buddy's in the middle of a fight and you need to get a hold of him for some critical reason, you may have to roll. Mm -hmm. Like, is he able to get to the cockpit to answer or whatever? You know. So there has to be some element of risk or danger. Yes. So when that happens, then there is a triggering phrase that's part of a move. Now, I should also probably mention there's not a move for everything. Okay? Right. The system is designed in such a way that there are moves for lots of things. There are basic moves, which are for things that pretty much everybody is likely to do. So things like fighting, shooting, searching, mm -hmm. you know, negotiating, stuff like that. Then there are specific playbook moves. So the soldier has a bunch of combat-focused sort of moves. Yeah. And depending on the kind of soldier you make, they might be good at blowing stuff up, they might be good at um, leading people into battle. Okay. So there's lots of options there, right? But they're all combat focused. Um, the scientist is going to have stuff, not a ton of combat focus. Um, creating devices, repairing stuff, you know, investigating things, you know, whatever. Um, and so forth. So they all have specializations. The point is they all have moves that are specific to kind of the stuff that they tend to be good at. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're better versions of the basic moves. Mm -hmm. So you say instead of using shoot, you get to use this cool move that's a little bit better than shoot. It's better, whatever. So, anywho, so you have all these moves. So the move is broken down as, as I mentioned, a trigger, and then the outcome. So the outcome is, well, the, the trigger is when you something. Yeah. So the verb is the important part there. Roll plus whatever. So in the system, roll is always 2d6. Mm -hmm. So whenever it says roll, it means grab 2d6. Um, and then... The plus is whatever your ability is. So in Infinite Galaxies, uh, there's six abilities. They're the same abilities in like D&D &D and Dungeon World. So it's strength, intelligence, mm -hmm. dex, whatever. And in Infinite Galaxies, they're just modifiers. Okay. So it's plus one, zero. Yeah. There's no numbers. Dungeon World still uses numbers, which I don't understand why. It makes it's, no sense. It, it, yeah. yeah. So I, I, that's one of the first things I did was I filed those off. I'm like, you don't need those. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, so that's the trigger. And so <coughs> when you whatever. And as a designer, you want to try to make that as general as you can while still fitting in with the, the idea of the move. Mm -hmm. So if the move is shoot, right, the obvious trigger is when you attack somebody with a ranged weapon, or however you want to word that, but that's essentially what it is. Um, roll plus your dex. And then the rest of the move uh, is the outcome. Yeah. So in Infinite Galaxies, and 
PBTA games in general, there's a complete success, partial success, and a failure. Yep. Uh, some games call them different things, but that's basically what it is. Dungeon World uses the actual numbers results, whereas um, I put the actual name of the outcome. So okay. in the move, it'll say complete success. And you're expected to remember what that is, because once you've rolled about three moves, you know what happens. It's like, yeah, it, it's so, such a simple mechanic. And my move really. sheets actually have a little chart in case you're oh. brand new, so that you can, you know, quickly as a visual. Yeah. But after you play it a little bit, that's not a problem. And so it'll say, like, complete success, this thing happens. Partial success, this thing happens. Or it'll say any success, this thing happens. Mm -hmm. And then partial success or complete success, you're expected to be able to kind of do an if-then yeah. sort of a calculation in your brain to figure out which of those happens. Right. Um, and then it never says what happens on a failure. So that's the domain of the Game Master, which, which you know, we can talk about. But um, anyway, so that's how pretty much all the moves are, 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 are focused, mm -hmm. are, are structured, sorry. Um, with the exception, there's a few moves in there that aren't really moves. They're more of like benefits. They don't have a roll mechanic, but it's like when you do this cool thing, you get a bonus. So they're not really like rolls. But I feel like that's something that's, that's common with um, Powered by Apocalypse games is like, well, here's this thing that, like, should this happen, you get a benefit to this. Right, or, yeah. You know, or you refresh this resource yeah. or something like right, that. Right, right, yeah. yeah, and I will say Apocalypse World does not have a ton of rolled moves in the playbook. Yeah. It's, it's pretty much stuff that modifies the basic moves. Yeah. So my game is quite a bit different than that. My game has a lot of rolled moves in the playbooks. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of moves just in general. There's more moves in Infinite Galaxies than in a lot of PBTA games. But that was just a design choice of mine. Yeah. Um, there's also a, a Defy Danger move, <coughs> which is from Dungeon World pretty much. Sure. A lot of games. And it's just a general catch-all, okay. Get out if of the way. If there isn't another move, well, but also if there isn't another move that handles this. Like, I want to walk up and convince these guards that it's okay for me to be here. Well, there isn't really a, a move like that, so just use Defy Danger with your charisma. Yeah. So stuff like that, where you can just kind of throw that in there when something else doesn't apply. You know? Well, it, like, you don't have a move that's, that's called when you slap a saber-toothed gar garble snack in the mouth, right. like roll this, yeah. that's Defy Danger. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so it's very important for the system to have that, because that is a, if you don't really have anything else, um, you can also, if you want to build custom moves, and I have advice in the GM chapter about how to do that, if you have to do that. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes you will have to do that. It's not like, like if you're gambling, there's no gambling move, but if you decide you want it to be a move, it's not really Defy Danger, but it's like, do I win any money or not? You could build a custom move for that. That's sure. fine. That's fine. Yeah. It's not, you don't want to have, I mean, it could be dangerous, depending on where it's happening. <laughs> right. But um, it may not be. It may just be a thing where, well, I need to know if they win money or not, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you can do that kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff that, that you know, well, and, and the, the ability to come up with that stuff on the fly is why people become game masters. Yeah. Because, you know. Um, but it's always good to have that um, that framework in place. Now, you've been playing games for a long time. Yes. I assume. Yes. Um, I, I, I guess I don't assume. I, I know this from having the conversation that we've had today. Um, so where did you get started? So I started um, in 1984 okay. with the expert set of basic D&D. Okay. Um, so I had an older friend who taught several of us. Mm -hmm. So I was in sixth grade, fifth grade, fifth grade, I want to say. And, um, yeah, so he taught us how to play D&D. And then he graduated, and so it was up to us to continue playing. And so I went and bought the basic set, because I was like, I didn't realize, oh, there's a, a level one through three version of this we should, probably should have tried first. 
Um, I mean, this is pre-internet, of course, mm-hmm. right? So it was just whatever you came across. Right. So I happened to be at a toy store that had it, and I'm like, oh, get me that, Mommy, and then, you know, whatever. I don't remember who got it. But anyway, um, so yeah, so we started playing D&D, and I became the game master just because I was the one who volunteered to do that. And we were all the same age. So it wasn't like a, 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 you know, we were all the, you know, so we are all peers, right? So yeah. um, it just fell to me, just... Well, also, I mean... You were also the dude who was like, "Hey, there's not a game that does the what I think I want. I'll let me just make a game." <laughs> like, I feel like that's <laughs> yeah, it's an ongoing theme. With I you. think some people just gravitate towards that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm much more of a content creator than a consumer. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't read a ton. I don't watch a ton of TV and movies. I'm mostly more. I want to do my like. I want to create. I want to make things. Yeah. Yeah. So. Even when I do stuff where I'm not creating things, I still want to be interacting with yeah. things. So like if I'm so like playing video games and stuff, like you're doing something, you're not just watching the game happen, you're interacting with it. Like so that's kind of my tendency. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I mean, creating games is hard, though. Mm-hmm. And one of the important things about Infinite Galaxies to me was that it filled a void that wasn't there. And I think if somebody right now is considering making like a fantasy game or like a, even a cyberpunk game like you really have to think about what I'm, what's new about my idea yeah because otherwise you're kind of waste I don't want to say you're wasting your time because I don't think that any experience where you create something is a waste of time for you mm-hmm. but if your idea is now I'm going to take this and sell this to people you may be disappointed sure because there's already tons of games out there and actually, one thing you mentioned earlier about the difference between a game like D&D and indie games is important. I want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. So, the concept of saying, I want to do this thing. Okay, so you're, let's say you're in a dungeon, and, you, and you're, you're playing a fantasy game. And you say, I want to... Like, the way you want things to happen as a game master is you want them to, the character to say, okay, we're in this strange room... I want to search the room and see if I can find the secret door or a trap or, or whatever they're, you know, sure. suspecting that might be here. But what happens in a game like D&D often is you enter the room and everyone says, I roll perception. Yeah. Without any context. They just say, I want to roll perception. And they're all, and you can have the whole group roll perception, right? Mm-hmm. And not only does that seem like artificially mechanical... Um, it's it you're you're sometimes you're 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 gonna roll and get an outcome. Let's say you fail. Well, what's what's the consequence? There's no consequence. There's right. no reason not to just keep rolling all the time. Right. Whereas in a PBTA game, you don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. You, you want to roll. Sometimes you want to roll as little as possible just because of the potential to fail, and yeah. then uh, the GM gets to do a bad thing, which I definitely want to talk about. But so the tendency in in an overtly mechanical game like D&D is to just immediately go to those things. Yeah. Say, I cast Magic Missile, or I, you know, I want to I just roll this thing, and I already know how this works, so I'm just going to grab my dice and roll a, a diplomacy check or whatever to convince them to do the thing without ever role-playing what you're telling them. Right. Like, you, oftentimes as a GM, you have to back them and say, well, well, hold on, before you roll, what is it you're trying to convince them to do? Like, you don't just roll it, and if you, you, you succeed, you win, and they, they stop being a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, but that's, unfortunately, that's a lot of players' tendency. Oh, yeah. Whereas my purpose is to say, tell me what it is you're trying to accomplish. Let's start with what the intent is, mm-hmm. okay? 
I'm trying to convince them that I'm not a danger to them. Okay, cool. So then I'll let you know what I think that is in the rules. Or maybe you can suggest, hey, I think this might be a negotiate move. Or mm-hmm. I think this might be a deception check. Okay, great. But what if the game master at some point has to decide whether that's the case or not, right? And then, um, you know, then you move forward from there. But I feel like at that point, at least you've established something that's actually happening. Right. Instead of a purely mechanical I roll dice. Right. Right. So because well that that always feels a little bit robotic too because it's like you know like if the rules can just run themselves why are we even having yeah. this conversation like like why are why are you know the game master and the players even having the conversation yeah. you know if I if I go to pick locks and I don't and I can just go to pick the locks again try it again there's no yeah yeah well that's that's what I sometimes call the illusion of choice yeah so when you when you go into a situation and you think you have a choice, but there's really only one option. Yeah. That's the illusion of choice. And yeah. so what I prefer <coughs> vastly, and what I've tried to design into Infinite Galaxies, is meaningful choices, multiple meaningful choices. Mm-hmm. So, And that goes into the advancement system. That goes into just kind of how gameplay works. You should have, in an ideal world, right, you should have multiple choices that both sound good, but also both might be problems, mm-hmm. and have to like agonize over that choice. That's what myself as a game master love to see the players agonizing. Not that I want them to be suffering, but I want them to be literally saying, well, gee, if we do A, we have to deal with X. If we do B, we have to deal with Y. Which one do we want to really be, you know? Mm-hmm. So that I think that should be your goal as a game master, because you're you're kind of an entertainer, right? And you're kind of a facilitator. And the entertainment can come from lots of things. The entertainment can come from like a gonzo kind of experience that we had with our G.I. Joe game. Yeah. Which was certainly entertaining. Yeah. The entertainment can come from being in dire straits and needing to get yourself out of it, which mm-hmm. we didn't really experience, but that's okay. But there's lots of games that will do that for you, like Call of Cthulhu or, you know. Sure. Right, horror games. Um and you can, you can get entertainment in lots of different ways. So I think you kind of have to understand what is my game, you know, what, what might people enjoy about it. And, and your game is not going to appeal to everybody. That's mm-hmm. the other advice I would probably tell creators. Your game is not going to appeal to everybody. Yeah. Even the biggest games out there, even Dungeon, Dungeons & Dragons, Pathfinder, they don't appeal to everybody. Some people are like, I refuse to play those games for whatever reason. Well, I mean, and the, even the, like, there's people who like Dungeons and Dragons but not Pathfinder people who like Pathfinder not Dungeons and Dragons but then there's also people out there who's like I don't want to play either of those I've met I've met people and I, I'm I, I'm not adverse entirely to fantasy but yeah. I don't play a ton of it yeah um, but I've met people who like I won't play anything fantasy like oh okay you know nothing, wrong, nothing that. wrong with that yeah no, no, yeah, no. Pro- personal preferences personal preference yeah and you, know? you might even not like a certain game for some reason. Maybe, you, and it could just be that you had a bad experience. Sure. I mean, th- that happens too. And I, I've had people um, in games I ran, the same exact game had a bad experience, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Well, I'll play your game because I like you, but I don't really like this game because of this experience I had." And I'm like, "Okay, well, tell me what that was, right? So I can be aware of it, and then let's, you know, let's let's have this game, and maybe you'll like it." And they yeah. did. You know, and it was because they had a bad experience, and it wasn't because the game was bad. Mm-hmm. Like that's rarely the problem. Like mm-hmm. there are bad games. There are bad games. Yes, but not many. But but not yeah, not many. Most of them are 
either it's not the game for you, or the game master misunderstood kind of what this game what was. Game that was. happens a lot. Um, or they're kind of misusing the game, or they're taking an adversarial approach with a game that really shouldn't have that. Mm-hmm. And there are games that should have that, but there are a lot of games. Most, most RPGs are not so really supposed to have that approach, right? right? Um, that's where the uh, one of the PBTA kind of directives for the game master is be a fan of the characters. Yes. So... Even in the, I mean, you can bring a lot of those concepts into a game like D and D. Oh, absolutely! And I think you should. And oh, honestly, yeah. in fifth edition, if you read some of the designer stuff, they clearly are aware of some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, long ago when I when I first started playing D and D, this is the old timer story. Um, Gary Gygax and the, and the original people that ran D and D very much intended for the dungeon master to be an adversary. Um, yeah. And I have heard descriptions of the way he ran. Sometimes he would run the game. He was behind a, a divider. And he was like shouting things over the divider so they wouldn't see his stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say his goal was to have the players killed, but there were very much like gotcha situations in his adventures where it was very easy for your characters to be killed. Right. And um, there are people out there who do enjoy, strange as it may sound, there are people out there that enjoy that. They think, absolutely. if I manage to survive this awful situation, then I'm entertained by that. But there are a ton of people who do not enjoy that. <laughs> and um, they certainly don't enjoy the game master who has all of this control also being against them. Yeah. Right? So, by the way, the perfect game for those people is called Paranoia. Yes. <laughs> totally. Yes, yes. Um... But, um, you know, because I was trained in that mindset, I was, I was, I don't want to say I was ever quite that far in that camp, but earlier on, I would say around maybe third edition D&D time, I was very much of the mindset that I didn't do my job properly as a dungeon master unless the players and their characters were miserable. Mm-hmm. Like, if I didn't challenge them enough... If I didn't make them expend every possible resource um, and maybe kill a few of them along the way, I never wanted to kill them, but I felt like if I did, then I was kind of doing my job. Yeah. Like that was, but that was the mindset. And then when I ran into story games, then it was like, oh, we can have a collaborative experience that is positive for everybody, still be challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's possible to do that without having that adversarial right. relationship. It's not necessary. Well, it, it's funny because I, I think I, I think you and I kind of came from that same place of, of you know, this is I, I can remember like the game master is always right, you know, and, and that yeah. kind of thing. And yeah. it, um, I can remember the exact moment where I started to question that and I, like uh, it probably had always been on my mind but I remember I started running a game in 3.5 it was probably the last game I started running in, in D&D 3.5 and the players made their characters and I was always I, w- I was never in that mode of like be a fan of the characters yeah. but I was a fan of some of these characters that people made yeah. and one of my good friends who came with me to Origins here um, one of my best friends in the world made a character that I thought was really cool. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to run him through this weird amalgamation of different pre-published adventures that yeah. I'm putting together for this campaign. Yeah. And the second encounter, he died. Oh, yeah. And 
I felt bad about that. I'm like, I wanted to see what more we were going to do with that. Yeah. <coughs> and I think that if I had... And it was... He died because he just failed some role. Sure, yeah. You know? Um, and it wasn't even a, like, saving throw or anything. It was, it was just, you know, he failed to do a thing, and the adventure said, this is what happens when that fails. Yeah. And I'm like, but this, he failed to do a perception check. Sure, yeah. And it's like, you know, and, but, but I, I remember that very moment where I was like, maybe I don't want to play this way, but I yeah. didn't know of another way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that because I was brought up that way in the hobby, as a, and I was almost always a game master, I would say like 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And even when people were making their characters, I was thinking of ways that I would have to create adventures to try to not kill them necessarily, mm-hmm. but to negate the things their characters were good at. Right. Okay, so he's bringing in a warlock. That means I have to have enemies that are X, Y, and Z. Like, I was thinking mm-hmm. that while they're making the damn characters. Yeah. Oh, he's playing a drow. That means I've got to have a bunch of sunlight and uh, stuff to annoy him. Like... I hate I, I, I looking back on I hated that I thought that way, but that was kinda how you were trained mm-hmm. is I've gotta immediately change or, or at least not maybe not change things I was gonna do, but but definitely design things to be that way, to be challenging to the specific characters. And now what I do because I still run D and D games, but now what I do is I think of an interesting situation and I don't care what the characters are. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking about it more as a story. Okay, well, your characters are in this situation, you know, and whatever you guys decide to do, um, I don't pre-plan a ton of stuff out. I have some stats for stuff, so I don't have to go look things up. But I don't have, like, story laid out. Right. You know, I'll say, here's some bad guys. Mm -hmm. This is what they're trying to do. This is where they are. These are the resources they have. Whatever the players do is whatever they do. They could decide not to pursue this at all. And unfortunately, I make extra prep for myself for trying to <laughs> anticipate, right? Like, okay, well, if they go this other way, then I have to have enemies for them to deal with there, mm-hmm. right? But I don't ever prescribe what the players are going to do. Oh. I, I, when you're doing anything that involves mysteries or conspiracies, you do have to kind of write some opportunities for them to learn stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I would, for anyone running a mystery game, that is the most important thing. And for as a player, the most frustrating thing about a mystery game, like Call of Cthulhu is a good example. If you don't have a way to lead the players kind of along, uh, it's super frustrating. Yeah. And so you do have to think about that. If, if, if you want to do a mystery sort of a game is, how am I going to eventually... I mean, the players have to have some part in this. You're not taking away their agency. Sure. But... Okay, well, if they go to this room, they find a journal, and in the journal it says, go to the lighthouse. Okay, cool, if they go to the lighthouse. If you don't have that, they're just going to run around because they don't know what to do. And and if you're not giving them opportunities to learn what the next step is, you're just going to frustrate people. Mm -hmm. And um, there are some, isn't like Gumshoe have like a mechanic for that? Yeah. Okay. So some of the newer games. Gumshoe and like Night's Black Agents. Yeah. There's a few different ones. There's a new one called uh, Baker Street, which has another okay. totally new type of mechanic yeah. for that. Yeah. But I think you... Building that in the mechanics is very important, because yeah. I think that otherwise it's easy, for the, it's easy for the game master to craft this interesting conspiracy or this interesting crime that's mysterious without an obvious way to solve it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
an example I give people about this phenomenon is um, Murder, She Wrote. Mm -hmm. So if you ever watch an episode of Murder, She Wrote, 98% of the episode is, is laying out the crime and all of these red herrings. Yeah. There's all these red... Oh, it's got to be this guy. Oh, he was uh, out of town that day. Or you know, So you go through the entire episode, and then at the end she just knows what happened. Mm -hmm. Like, And there's no setup. Like, how did she figure this out? It's never explained. Oh, it was it was Uncle Joe because whatever. And they, and they kind of back explain it a little bit. But you can't run an RPG that way. Right. Like, you can't spend most of the game laying out all these things, and they all end up being red herrings. And then you're like, well, hell. And yeah. then... The GM has to, because of time reasons, has to deus ex machina the result because you, you're not getting there. So you don't want that. So right. I think that's why you need the, you know, the leading the clues on. But sure. that Spring doesn't. Along. Yeah, but that doesn't just apply to mystery games. That applies to any game where you have a semblance of a plot. Like mm -hmm. if you're if, if if you're expecting the players to be able to drive the action, they can't do that without some knowledge. Sure. So you have to be willing to give out those tidbits. Well, even like, you know, I, I would almost say, because a mystery game is a, is a very specific thing that people think of, but sometimes a story is a mystery before it becomes something else. Like, yeah. um, I was thinking of the, the movie Aliens. Yeah. You know, they show up and they're like, they want to find out what happened. Yeah. They do. Yeah. But it's not like they have to find clues to get there. It eventually just shows up and tries to eat them. Yeah. Which can happen. But they do get some clues. They do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't start off with them being attacked. I mean, it's not like... Because, like, if you're going to structure it like a game, you might have a situation where <coughs> the characters are just wandering around mm -hmm. and not getting anywhere. Right. And the GM's like, well, okay, I'm going to have to kick this in the butt because nothing's happening. Mm -hmm. So, boom, here come the xenomorphs. But that's not a good design. No. Like, the good design is the way the movie laid out, where it's, okay, we can't find the colonists. Oh, we found this lab with a bunch of weird face huggers in it. Okay, yeah. this is not good. And then, so they kind of slowly lead you into the action part. Yeah. But um, I think those elements are important for really any kind of a game that is... There are some games that probably don't need it. Like, for example, I played a game yesterday, which is a kind of a road trip movie game. Mm -hmm. And I, we, there wasn't a lot of breadcrumbs. It sure. was kind of a, you've got to go from point A to point B, and there's a bunch of obstacles, and you mm -hmm. deal with them. Like, it's a very linear sort of a game, and, and that's okay. But most games, I think, that have a plot would benefit from a little bit of breadcrumb stuff. Yeah, yeah, It yeah. depends on the game. It's uh, one of the... Um, Running mysteries is one of those things. I until I learned how to write a mystery, I had no idea no. what it meant to really run anything re related to a mystery. And since then, I've been pretty happy about um, the mysteries I've run. I've I, I've actually uh, I've only done it a couple times where I've improvised a mystery that's worked out pretty well. That's be yeah tough yeah. It's tough yeah. yeah. Um, and um, it's one of those things like, you know. I'm, I've been gaming a lot of years, and I've played a lot of different stuff. I'm not going to tout my skill level at anything, but I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to, um, as, as we're going along, we've teased this a bunch of times. Yeah. Let's talk about the fail-forward concept and, and the, oh, okay, right. the, that, that mechanic, because it's something that I've had, I've, I've talked to other creators of Powered by Apocalypse games, I've never really had a real conversation about that element. Okay. Um, so, so, what's the appeal as a game designer to having that in, in your game? 
Okay, so one of the design principles is that every role has a consequence or a result. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go back real quick to like a, a game like D&D. You might have everybody in your group roll a perception check, and half of them fail, half of them succeed. Um, you give the information out once, right? Okay, three of you see this demon hiding up in the corner. Mm -hmm. Well, now they all know it, so it doesn't matter that they failed. Yeah. Nothing happens to the ones that failed. Because because you've told the table, they all know it. Even mm -hmm. if they try to you know be good players and not do that, they all know they it, right? Know. So, the design principle in a Powered by the Apocalypse game, certainly in Infinite Galaxies, is that every roll has some kind of a consequence. And you don't always want to roll. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're just opening a door. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the door's rigged with an explosive, and your character may not know that. <laughs> right. So, so, when there's an element of danger... Right? There's always going to be some kind of a consequence. The consequence could be that you succeed and yeah. you kill the bad guy. Yeah. The consequence could be that you take damage. The consequence could be that you make noise and you attract some other enemy that wasn't bothering you before. Uh, the consequence could be that the uh, airlock blows open and now you're being sucked into the vacuum of space. Like There could be lots of consequences, but there has to be a consequence. Right. The consequence could be failure. And failure could be a small failure. Like, okay, you shot the guy, but you missed. Mm -hmm. And he shot back and hit you. That's a failure. But the failure could be you shot the guy and missed and hit the reactor. And okay. now you set off a chain reaction that you're going to have to deal with. Yeah. But the important thing is that there's a consequence. So every time you roll, something about the story is changing. So as the game master, your primary responsibility is to improv. Mm -hmm. right? Improv what happens next. So... When the characters succeed, when they get a complete success or a partial success in, mm -hmm. in Infinite Galaxies, they have, to a certain extent, narrative control over what happens. It's going to be choices that they're allowed to make. It's going to be, based on the move, it will kind of say what happens. But they have control, or at least they have a positive outcome. Okay? When there's a failure, that is completely in the domain of the Game Master. Now, I should back up a little bit. A partial success, there could be elements of that that the Game Master also has input on. Right. For example, it may say, the Game Master chooses one of these bad things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's some moves that do that. Some moves, the player chooses, but they're all negative things. Mm -hmm. So you're choosing, well, what's the negative thing I want to deal with? For example, on shoot, right? You're shooting your gun. So if you get a partial success, you still hit them, but you either... Mark ammo, mm -hmm. so you've had to fire a bunch of shots and you reduce your ammo. Um, you put yourself in a dangerous spot. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you shot these guys, but now you drew the attention of somebody else, or you had to move and now you're standing in fire. <laughs> or, um, uh, what's the other one? Um, ammo thing. I don't know. Anyway, so there's, there's some negative consequences you have to pick. Oh, yeah. you reduce your damage. That's what it is. So you, okay. you, you, you hit them, but it's kind of a glancing shot, and you only do you know, X amount ah, of damage. Ah, right, 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 right. So those are the three things in the player picks from those. But there are other moves where the GM picks. And so it's just kind of based on whatever move it is. Mm -hmm. um, but in the case of a failure, which I think was the root of your question, the GM has narrative control. And this is not the normal state of the game. So the normal state of the game is the GM sets up the situation. So normally... The players could sort of suggest things, but usually the game master is the one who says, okay, you guys are in a, in a tavern on the mm -hmm. space station, and it's noisy, and there's people playing gambling games, and you're here to meet your contact, and they haven't shown up, they're an hour late, what do you do? Right. So you've set up a situation. You haven't prescribed any actions. One of the, my pet peeves about some game masters will say, 
you walk in and you do this and you order drinks and you do all these things. And I'm like, well, maybe I don't do though. Hold on. Just set the scene. I'll tell hmm. you what I do. I don't need you to tell me what I do. Anyway, uh, <laughs> my pet peeve. So, um, I think that comes from box text. Oh, it, bo- yeah, box uh, text uh, is the worst. <laughs> I, I've only had one occasion where I've walked by a table where somebody was reading just through all this box text, and I was like, oh, man, oh, buddy. <laughs> I'm okay with box text if it doesn't prescribe actions. I don't mm-hmm. mind box text if it's like, here's a room, and it's complicated, so here's right. the description to make sure you don't miss any important details. Right, I'm okay with that, but mm. it's like prescribing actions, like you search the room and you find a blah blah blah. Yeah. I'm like, no, 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 that's too much. So, anywho, um, so the main narrative control that the game master has over what happens is on a failure. So, there are uh, in the moves there are no listings. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's a couple moves where it says what happens on a failure. Most of the time, that's not the case because mm-hmm. the game master is expected to improvise a an outcome based on what's going on, and sure. it's just too. There's too many possibilities to, to try to put those into a move. Um, so, the GM has directives. Mm-hmm. The GM has 12 principles that they are generally supposed to use to help guide them through running the game. Then you have a list of moves that aren't... They aren't moves in the sense that you don't roll any dice. But it will say things like um, split up the players. Right. Make them spend resources put them in danger. Um, maybe they lose access to some resource. Maybe the, an NPC turns on them. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. There's, all, there's a bunch of them in, in the book. And um, th- th- these are mostly inherited from previous PBTA games, but I have kind of reworded and kind of rethought a little bit. So they're, they're new. Like, if you were to look at them, you wouldn't think, oh, these are just stolen right from whatever game. Yeah. Like, I've, I've kind of thought through what I think about those and kind of in my own words. But... Mm-hmm. The point is, um, you have some guidelines in terms of what generally should be happening on a failure. Um, it could be that your character takes damage, if that makes sense in the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be that you are put in danger, whatever. It could be that there's a new hazard that you have to deal with. Um, it could be that one, you know, you get, like I said, you get split up from your fellow, you know. And it's not as easy as, okay, you miss this roll and you guys are split up, right? And, unless it makes sense. Like if you're on two separate ships. And then you fail. Maybe that does happen. Maybe yeah, one of the yeah. ships is like the engines fail. So you could very well be split up. Like one of you could crash land and you have to deal with that. So, but oftentimes it's not as simple as that. So as the GM, you have to start thinking about, okay, uh, it'd be interesting if X happens. But I can't make it happen. I can kind of influence it happening if I think that's an interesting way to take the story. Mm-hmm. But you have to let it organically happen. So you have to have these principles in mind while you're running the game, and you can't just overtly um, just say, oh, I'm splitting you guys up. Yeah. You can say things like, I'm going to have you mark a use of your utility belt, because that's fun. That's not a super overt thing. That's right. a consequence. But right. if it's like, you know, I want to make it to where you guys are all broke, <laughs> you shouldn't really say that. Even yeah. if that's your intent. Like, that's, well, and that's not being a fan of the characters, right? Well, it could be. Like, if your goal is to see how they deal with that adverse situation... Oh, fair enough. But if it's just punitive, right, of course. Yeah, but yeah. If, if, it's, if it'd be interesting for them to be broke because they need to buy a spaceship part, then that becomes something that, again... And, and I think this is the most important thing about being a game master in any system. Nothing happens in your game until there's conflict. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, 
you can have all these NPCs talking to each other and have this great conversation between yourself and yourself as the Game Master. Oh, the prince and the wizard are talking to each other, and you're watching them talk, and it's great. And they're just using all this witty dialogue, and I'm describing everything as this beautiful throne room. Yeah. All this awesome stuff's happening, and your characters are just sitting there watching all this. Nothing's happening in terms of the game. Even if the wizard and the prince decide, we're going to attack our neighboring kingdom, that's great. What are we doing? The right. players are like, what, what, how does this affect us? We don't care. I mean, we may very well care what they say, right? But the players have no agency in this situation. They're not doing anything, mm -hmm. right? Nothing in the game moves forward until there's a conflict. So, let's say in this situation, they decide they're going to attack this neighboring kingdom. And they go to the players and say, hey, PCs, we want you to spearhead this effort. We want you, we're going to pay you to go to this neighboring kingdom, scout out, find us a great place to attack. Yeah. Right? A vulnerable spot in their defenses, whatever, whatever. Still, nothing has really happened in terms of the plot, right? Nothing happens until they go there and they try to scout this place out and somebody opposes them, mm -hmm. okay? So, as the game master, what your, your ultimate goal is is to create interesting conflict, okay? It's not interesting if they attack a bunch of peasants. Right. And the peasants are opposing them no threat. That's not interesting. If... The peasants turn out to be zombies that are infecting a plague or whatever. Like, that's interesting, because sure. that's something for them to deal with. So, even something that seems mundane might be interesting if you put a little bit of a twist on it. But, your goal should be, I want to make things interesting for the characters. Mm -hmm. So, you don't want to, like, go through some rote, boring, planned out deal. And I'll, I'm going to talk about that a little bit, too. But, your goal should be to come into it and say, I've got an interesting idea. I think it'd be cool if there was a robot revolution and the, and the PCs were on the space station and the robots rose up and started to try to take it over. Perfect. But that's all. That's all I'm going to do. That's it. And then I'm going to say, okay, you guys, you're sitting around. All of a sudden, all these labor droids and all these things just get up and stop doing their work. And that seems weird. Like, the, all of a sudden, all of them at once, stop sweeping the floor, stop refilling mm -hmm. the whatevers, and they just they go away. What do you, oh, that's weird. Where did they go? Well, you can follow them. Okay, cool. They went down this thing, and you follow them, and they attack you or whatever, right? So then you have an interesting conflict. Like, why are these guys attacking us? Mm -hmm. They're labor robots. Like, they don't even have guns. They're literally just hitting them with brooms or whatever they're doing, right? But now you start the, you start the, um, the, the clocks moving in their head or, you know, the gears turning. That's what I meant. Yeah. So that you get the gears turning about, well, what, where is this going? But even the Game Master, if, you're, if you do it right, you don't know where it's going either. But, right. but you want them to think you do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the 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 um, the illusion you want to put up is that you you have this all under control, right? <laughs> Obviously, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, always. But you you don't yeah. you don't. And like when you're at a convention, I don't like for this game and for any kind of PBTA I run, I don't have anything planned. Mm -hmm. At most, I'll have like an idea. Yesterday, I ran Infinite Galaxies, and um, I had the idea of this planet I've used before. It was like a desert planet, and it was on a decaying orbit, and it was going to eventually get way too close to its star. It was going to get super hot. Okay. But the planet had all these cool resources on it. And so all these people wanted to go there and mine the resources, uh. not realizing they had a limited amount of time before all their stuff was going to melt, mm -hmm. and it would, they'd all be dead. So the player characters didn't know any of this. They, oh, there's this cool planet that just got discovered. Let's go there. These prospectors are like, hey, we'll pay you to escort us to this place because there's pirates and stuff. It might be dangerous, so let's go there. And then that's all I knew. Mm -hmm. And then as we played, things unfolded. 
And when I needed something, I have run lots of games. So I have in my toolbox stuff I can throw in there. Sure. Oh, there's a big worm that comes out of the... Yeah. I mean, that's odd. Like, they even joked about it before I did it. They're like, that would be hilarious if there was like a worm popped out of the ground. I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, by the way, players, don't give your GM ideas. They really, they don't need it. Um, <laughs> I had For a, example, when you have a bunch of bikers and somebody says snowmobiles. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, here's a perfect example. So um, we had a game where there was um, these ships, uh, were, they're supposed to be escorting these people to like this peace conference. And... Um, some psychic event wiped out all the biologicals were all knocked unconscious mm-hmm. by this like wave of like telepathic force. So there were one of the PCs was a robot. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so he wasn't affected. He's like, and he's a combat robot, so he doesn't know how to fly the ship. Not really. <laughs> so he's like, uh, and all these ships are slowly getting closer because they were supposed to be landing, right? So they're all kind of, you know, getting closer and closer. He's like, oh, that's not good. So eventually, after. Fa- there were like 12 straight failures to start the game, by the way. I want to point this out. Okay. And as the GM, that is super challenging because you, do, you can't just keep doing the same thing. Right. Like, your consequences have to be different. You can't just, like, damage, damage, damage. You can't do that. You yeah. have to be, like, damage, and then, okay, a system fails, and then, okay, this other thing. Like, you can't just keep going back to the same well as a consequence unless it just makes the most sense. Yeah. But rarely does that make sense. So, um, anyway... So he eventually figured out, oh, I should try to wake up these biologicals on my ship. <laughs> so uh, he did. Oh, yeah, oh, hey, we all got knocked out. And everyone else on the other ships also got knocked out, because at that point he didn't know. Mm-hmm. It never occurred to him to like, get on the radio and try to... <laughs> he was just trying to deal with his ship crashing. He didn't think about it. Okay, cool. So everyone else was also knocked out on these other ships, and none of them had robots. So they were the only ship that had people that were awake. We've got to deal with this quick, because they're going to crash into each other, mm-hmm. right? So the robot goes out there. More failures. This was, like, really bad. Like, what? they ended up getting the wings locked together on some of these, you know. So they're, it was just, I had to keep up with stuff, you yeah. know. But eventually they're, like, they had, like, a scientist or someone technical on the, sh- on the team, and they're like, oh, we should try to remote control this other ship using whatever, right, mm-hmm. space technology, so that we can keep it from crashing. Because yeah. we can't, for whatever reason, they couldn't get over to the ship, or they were... They wanted to use that as, like, plan B because <laughs> it was dangerous, right? So, like, okay, cool. So, as they're getting ready to roll, this guy's move to try to do this. He's like, um, wouldn't it be funny if we transmitted, like, self-destruct codes over there instead of... And I'm like, as a GM, I'm like, hmm. And then they failed. <laughs> and I'm like, well, guess what just happened? You've got three minutes to get over there for it blow up. <laughs> uh, that was don't don't give me ideas seriously. Yeah, that was a punitive thing. I mean, you should, but it's still it's pretty funny. But it, I mean, it, it it sometimes though. Now, I think the 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 old don't give the game master ideas works with the the other games we were talking about. Yeah, where it's totally. a little bit more adversarial. Yeah, but I but with with story games, you know, th- when those elements come up. It helps to move that story forward. Yeah, I mean, I mean that rather jokingly. Like, in yeah. that situation, it, it did actually was a funny result. Um, but no, you should totally give your Game Master ideas. Oh, it's good. Um, I, especially when it pertains to your character. Mm-hmm. Like, you should totally, um, I, I think, maybe hold back on stuff that doesn't affect your character just because, like, you don't want to start suggesting stuff for other characters, I think. Especially other player characters. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I think so-and-so should do X, Y, and Z. Like... I'm kind of hesitant to have people do that because mm-hmm. I feel like unless 
you've got a situation with a couple of veteran characters and a couple of new people. Like, if right. you're all generally the same, you should kind of let them do their thing. And if they ask for your help, offer it. But sure. don't start trying to... Because there are players who will do this. They will try to take over the whole game. They will oh, say, yeah. oh, so-and-so, you go do that. And if they're the leader of the group, and they're actually ordering the other characters around because that makes sense, that's mm -hmm. okay. But there are plenty of situations where... The characters are, like, physically split up, and you're trying to tell them what to do, and you're not there. Like, that's another pet peeve of mine. It's like, let them let them, figure let them have out. some spotlight yeah. time, yeah. right, which is another thing. Let them have their spotlight time. Let them do their thing. You just sit, look at your phone, whatever you got to do. Just mm -hmm. let them. But there are players who have that tendency. They want to always jump in. Mm -hmm. And as the game master, you have to be wary of that. You have to say, let everyone have time. So another thing that I talk about in the book is spotlight time. Mm-hmm. Spotlight time as a player is critical, even if you don't realize it's happening. But you need to have time for your character to do cool stuff. Yeah. Okay? Every character is different. Every character has different things they bring to the table. And a good game master... And I don't want to do this whole thing from the game master perspective, but the game master sure. is such a big part of it, right? As the game master, you have to be cognizant of what each character is good at. Right. Um, you do not have to, although it, it can be good practice to do this, but you do not have to specifically design stuff for, okay, uh, Johnny is a saboteur, so I'm going to make sure there's something for him to blow up. Mm -hmm. Right? You have to be careful with that because um, you want to let things grow organically. So Johnny should know that he's good at blowing stuff up and want to blow stuff up. So all you're doing is the game master is saying, there's stuff that you could blow up. Right. And it might be useful. Hey, maybe you want to distract the guards. You know, it'd be real distracting—a big explosion. <laughs> so, Johnny, why don't you sneak over there? Yeah. You know, and Johnny wants to go do this thing. But, but part of this is on the players. They mm -hmm. have to drive some of this. Right. They have to say, "Okay, my character is good at X. Let's go do the X. Let's go do the thing." And the game master's part of it is to say, "Yeah, X is possible." Yeah. Okay, you're in an environment where X could happen. Yeah. So. For example, in Infinite Galaxies, um, one of the characters starts with a spaceship, okay, the ace. So if you have an ace in your group, you need to at least some of your adventures should take place aboard that ship so mm -hmm. they can do cool stuff on the ship. It doesn't have to be the whole thing, right? You could have them fly somewhere dangerous and then get there and then the rest of it's not on the ship and that's okay. As long as the player's okay with it, and you can usually tell, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes it just works out that way. It's not like the ace can't do anything else. That's just the thing they're awesome at. Sure. They can still shoot a gun and, you know. But the point is, <coughs> if you have a character who's obviously pointing their stuff at social things, mm -hmm. like interacting with folks, deceiving folks, getting information from people, you need to be aware of that, that that's what they're telling you they want out of the game. Yeah. Um, and you should try to accommodate that. That's not always possible. Sometimes you'll have five combat characters and one social character, and you're like, how... Am I going to do this? Because I've got five people at my table telling me they want fights. Right. And one person who may or may not be that adamant about having some social stuff. So yeah. you have to kind of think about how can I appease. I don't know, appease may not be the right word, but, you know, how do I accommodate all these different folks? Sure. And so that's where the concept of Spotlight comes in. So let's say you were in that situation where you had five combat characters and one social character. Yeah. So maybe you could have a scene where they have to negotiate a deal with somebody. And then the rest of it could be them going and doing this thing. Sure. But even if you have a bunch of combat stuff, there could be a situation where maybe they can convince the bad guys to surrender. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you're, you're taking away that option. Or even like a situation where the social guy 
has to talk things through and distract people while the combat guys are like sure, doing course. their thing, commandoing yeah. through. Yeah. yeah. So, like I said, part of this is on the players. The players yeah. have to want to do these things, and then they have to express that. Mm -hmm. You know, some players may pick a social character just because that's what they've played before. Maybe they're not all that interested, but that was like the most obvious thing to them. And maybe they're okay with not doing that stuff. Maybe mm -hmm. they're okay with just having a gun and shooting stuff. You know? So, there's always that too. So, you kind of have to get that from talking to the players, get that sense, yeah. you know, where they're at. And some people are, honestly, some people are okay with not having any spotlight. Yeah. But as the game master, you have to try not to have that happen, you know. And the most dangerous time for that is when they split up. So you have to be like, okay, let's play characters A and B out for a little bit until there's an actual stopping point, mm -hmm. and then we'll switch to C and D and let them do some stuff. Um that can be hard to do, especially for a novice GM, because it's like the tendency is to be like, let's do A and B until they're like done with their thing, mm -hmm. and then we'll go back to C and D. Well, meanwhile, players C and D have been sitting there for 45 minutes doing nothing. Right. And that's awful. Right. You don't want that. So you have to manage that by kind of figuring out where a natural stopping point is mm -hmm. and then switching over and give everybody some time to do stuff. So spotlight is super important yeah. um, for players. Finding that beat, too, can be, like, finding the beat of, like, what's the interesting thing to stop on so we're keeping them hanging, almost like the commercial break for these guys. Right, it is. As yeah. we're jumping, yeah. you know, back and forth. Yeah. And, and, you know what, and I think the cinematic um, approach or kind of a, a um, yeah, a cinematic approach to game mastering is very important mm -hmm. because, um, and, and, and it has some pros and cons. I want to talk about both. So, pros are, people are used to it. Yeah, people. All of your game, all of your players have watched TV shows and movies. Okay, unless they've you just got them out of a cave, right? So um, they're all used to that. They're used to having these dramatic moments. They're used to having cliffhangers. They're used to having, you know, oh the guy's about to shoot and then it cuts to something else. Like yeah, they're yeah. used to that structure. And so when you're able to do that stuff in your game, there's immediate buy-in. Yeah. Even if they don't like what's happening to their character. Structurally, they're like, okay, that makes sense. That makes, yeah. Um, so that's the pro to doing a cinematic approach. The con is you have to be very careful about using that approach because, and this is another design thing about in terms of game mastering running a game. Mm -hmm. Some game masters are frustrated novelists or screenwriters. <laughs> okay? And what they want to do is they want to plan out every single detail of what happens. So they yeah. want to... Obviously, this is not my recommendation, but I'm just saying there are people out there who do this. I've, I've gamed with plenty of them. And they want to tell you about their cool world and their cool story and all these NPCs and all this crazy... And they spend like an hour talking about yeah. it. And you're like, eh. And what they really would, should be doing is writing a novel. Yeah. Or writing a screenplay. Like, that's 100%. what they should be doing and not yeah. running a game. Yeah. So, I want to talk about the three-act structure, which is the traditional model of writing stories, mm -hmm. okay, and how that applies to gaming. So, real quick, and I know you're familiar with this, but the three-act structure, Act 1 is kind of where you set stuff up, mm -hmm. Act 2 is where things get more complicated, and Act 3 is where things get resolved. Yep. Okay. So games can be like that if you view the finished game, mm -hmm. you can maybe look back on it and see where Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3 are. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, before you've done anything, you should not be doing that. You should be thinking about Act 1 only. Right. So when you are going to run a new game, you should think about Act 1 stuff. You should think about establishing things that are important, establishing characters that are important, 
themes, you know, tone. Mm -hmm. Those are all Act One sort of things. You're setting up the rules. Okay, you're setting up. There are seven planets in this star system, and three of them are gas giants, and four of them are rocky planets that you can go to, and one of them is dangerous. Blah, blah, blah. You're setting up all these rules, right? But these are all Act One sort of things. You're not saying that, okay, and then uh, the secret police are going to capture you and going to do X, Y, and Z to you, and then you have to figure out how to get out of their jail. Right. Like, you don't think about that before the game starts. Right. You're going to say, there's a secret police organization that's bad, and yeah. they, they don't like you. For, maybe, they don't, maybe they don't care about you right now, but they could be a threat. Yeah. Right? So you're thinking about Act 1 and maybe a little bit into Act 2. So maybe you're thinking about some complications. What could happen with this? Right. Like, if they did decide to go to this gas giant for some reason, what could happen there? Mm -hmm. Or what happens if they don't realize that their engine has been sabotaged? Like, you, you, you do have to think about what might happen, but you're not deciding what will happen. You're yeah. deciding what... Not deciding, but you're coming up with ideas what could happen. But you're never resolving Act 2 and Act 3. But a lot of people want to do that. They want to have the whole thing laid out, and the players are just spectators. And that's bad. Well, it, I 100% agree. I think... One of the ways I like to approach it, and, and I like to think about it, is, like, what would happen if the player's characters didn't bother to show up to work that day? Right. Like, here's, here's how this scenario would have played out. And Life like, goes on without them. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, I, like that's, I started that approach to, um, to cons. Of course, somebody's vacuuming now. Of course, yeah. It doesn't seem Talk to be louder. too much. So all right, good. Okay. Yeah, all right, all right. But um, <laughs> I, I, I started having that approach uh, running a Forgotten Realms game. Yeah. And it w it, that was entirely how I ran that entire campaign. Yeah. And, you know, it was just that the players were messing up the things that other people were doing. Yeah. But they would have been doing it successfully anyway. Yeah. So, so I want to offer a counterpoint to that. Sure. So... It's important to know what that is. Yeah. Because your setting has to seem real. Yeah. Or at least real enough, right? Yeah. Like, an economy happens in this world. Um, politics happens. Commerce happens. Mm -hmm. People go to religious ceremonies or entertainment things or, you know, these things happen and the, and the, the players should be generally aware of those things happening. Right. However, and this is a pitfall for a lot of the the, no, the frustrated novelist gems mm -hmm. is they want to focus on all that stuff. So they want to say, hey, I've come up with this really cool setting and there's traveling minstrels and I'm going to describe all of them and, you know, and they get way too far into that. So mm -hmm. the counterpoint to that is nothing really happens until the players get involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your story should be about the player characters. Oh, 100%. Thanks. Anyway, <laughs> the point is that uh, you should have all that as a foundation. You yeah, should yeah. have an idea of, okay, well, the religious system in this setting is this, and it's generally, here are some gods, maybe, that I may or may not use, but the only gods that matter are the ones the characters care about. Yeah. There are other gods, you know, but the cleric in the party worships whatever, whatever. so I'm going to focus on that. Mm -hmm. And other, th other stuff exists. If you run into it, beautiful. If you don't, that's okay, too. Um, and you let them know, oh, this is one of the seven gods. Cool. Okay. Sure. Let's not worry about the rest of them unless it comes up. But I, the important part and the way you get away from the frustrated novelist and towards being a fan of the characters is also being a fan of the players by saying, yeah. we're going to focus the attention on what you guys want to do. Oh, absolutely. So I'm setting the scene, and that's my job, right? And then you go. So you, what do you do? Yeah. And 
What do you do is the most important question in all of gaming because it takes everything from I'm telling, I'm telling this all this cool stuff and then flipping it and then now it's you. 100%. And if you don't have that what do you if, if what do you do happens an hour into your first game session you have your problems. Yeah. It should be like 15 minutes. Seriously, because otherwise you're wasting everyone's time. I mean, it, it's great to have all this detail. It really is. But if I wanted that, I could read Lord of the Rings. Well, like, it, it's just, you know. I think one of the, the, other, the other side of that, too, for me, has always been like, you know, figure out what, the, what would happen if the players didn't show up for their work that day. Yeah. And then they do show up to work, and you throw out everything that's after that. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you determine what's going to... Um, uh, one of the jokes, one of the things that I said... Um, on a podcast, or maybe it was after it. I can't remember. That was on recently. I said, if you if you think you're going to have 30 sessions for a game, that's a lot. But yeah. if you think you're going to have 30 sessions for a game, and you you map out what what all 30 sessions would look like without the player characters in it, yeah. when you have that first session, throw out the other 29 and rewrite them. Yeah. And and you and you can you can kind of have this this uh, you know. It, but it, I actually. Phil from Misdirected Mark does it where he builds um, trees. Yeah. And, okay. And like decision branches. trees. Sort yeah. Of? Okay. Okay. And decision trees. Yeah. Yeah. And um, which I, that's a new thing for me. But like, I, I I like the idea that the the world would be very different, except for this disruptive influence that's going to happen, and that's the player character. Yeah. And they yeah. everything that would have happened otherwise. Audio. Yeah, I mean, I think you do need that detail for fictional justifications of, of certain things. Yeah. Like, if your player characters are all kind of scum of the earth, uh, broke ass, whatever. Like, let's say you're, you played Torchbearer. Have you heard of Torchbearer? I haven't played Torchbearer, but I've heard of well, it, Well, yeah. the idea is your characters are adventurers because there's literally nothing else for them to do. Yeah. They're broke. No one likes them. Whatever. So you just set that up as a rule for your setting. And every time they go to the guild... Or do they go to the market, or they go somewhere where there's people that have things they are always uh, looked down upon. Yeah. And that's just a rule of the setting. So mm -hmm. the setting is your characters are scum of the earth, mm -hmm. and um, everyone with any amount of respect is going to look down upon you. And so, in that sense, if the characters aren't there, life goes on. It's good for you to know what that is. So sure. if they decide to go to the guild, maybe they break into the guild, right? After hours or something, well, what's there? Like, what, what would be interesting for them to find? Or let's say they, they went into this bazaar. What's happening in the bazaar? Maybe there's some kind of a riot going on because of a food shortage. You know, maybe there's some onerous tax that's been you know, put upon. You know, something's happening. It may not involve the characters at all, but maybe it will. Yeah. Maybe it interests them. You know what? I think it's, what, how would we get food for these people? And maybe your adventure takes a different turn. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the most important thing is you as a GM is to have that as knowledge that this is things that are happening, but it goes into the background, mm -hmm. and then wait for the players to become interested in something. You know, they may um, be interested in something you didn't expect. Yeah. You know, so that's the fun part about it because they may they like it, yeah they may surprise you with what they become interested in. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I think I think there's a there's a an element that, uh, and, and I think thinking back to this Forgotten Realms campaign, um, just because I'm in that mode, I, I, I love giving players the choice. You can either deal with this really bad thing or this really bad thing. 
Yeah. And they're like, well, this seems like the worst thing right now. We can come back and deal with this thing. And then they keep going along this line. And then later on, this bad thing that they ignored, it gets way worse. Yeah. And then they, and it comes back around to them. And, um, but if they hadn't dealt with the other thing, they would have had to deal with something on that end. And, yeah. um, and those choices... But one of the things I'll, I'll say, let's, since we're since we're throwing out advice for game masters, yeah. one of the things I'll say is it is never satisfying to say this bad thing that you ignored it went off and too bad. Like, but if you have it come back around later on, we're like, oh no, it's worse. Yeah, really we never dealt with this thing, yeah. and now it's yeah. Yeah. So um, Vincent Baker, who <coughs> is the creator of Apocalypse World, mm -hmm. um, he wrote and subsequently got rid of, which I'm very sad about, but um, he wrote a Dark Ages version of Apocalypse World, which was very different from regular Apocalypse World. Interesting. So he has a new version of it that's basically just fantasy versions of his playbooks. Okay. But the original version of that was way different. The original version was each of the characters had a domain that they controlled. Mm -hmm. So they had a playbook, yes, but their character was a representative of some cultural group. Okay. So a political region, like a kingdom or whatever. And part of what you would do every session, you would roll to see what happened with your kingdom. It was called, I think, a domain move or something, right? And if you got a success, nothing bad happened. I think maybe you earned some gold or something. Your kingdom got some kind of income or something good happened, right? Obviously. If you got a partial success, then there was some kind of either a new threat emerged mm -hmm. that was far off or some threat you already knew about got worse. And then... All the characters would roll this, right? Okay. If there was a failure, then something really bad happened, and you would immediately need to deal with it, or else really bad things would happen, right? Right. But multiple threats were being introduced because you had all these characters that were doing rolling it, yeah. right? And you could only have time to deal with so many during a session. Yeah. So no matter what you did, something would get worse in the background. And huh. so the next session, right, you'd be taking notes, of course, of all this stuff. Okay, well, the trolls were in the forest, but you didn't deal with them. So now let's roll your domain move in the next session. Oh, you got another partial success. Well, uh, this you, you stop hearing from this logging camp in the forest, yeah. and I wonder if the trolls are involved. And I love that idea because normally the game master just has to cope with that stuff on their own. Mm -hmm. Like if the characters aren't dealing with stuff and you want to bring in side quests or whatever you want to call it, um, you have to remember to do that stuff. Sure. And... Making it a role puts it in the, at least the player's consciousness that there are these threats, and because you're not dealing with them, they're getting worse. Mm -hmm. And like I was talking about earlier with choices, it forces you to make a choice. Okay, well, we've got you know, rioting peasants that refuse to work on their farm, and we've got trolls and maybe something else. Which one is the most important for us to deal with? Right. And that's an interesting choice, and that's what I get back to. Your game should always be about interesting choices. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. Um, I did want to advertise my game a tiny bit. I want to go back to that a little bit. We are so. going to, actually, okay. I was just about to get back to that. Okay, okay. Because the thing I was going to ask you is, we've been talking a lot about, by the way, this is definitely going to be two episodes. <laughs> um, but we've been, we've been talking a lot about, like... If they only knew how much we'd already talked. I know, right? right. Um, Six-hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, I was going to talk about, um, you know, we've been talking about Game Master and, and players, yeah. and those different elements, um, and one of the things that we kind of got in, got on was talking a little bit about campaigns and everything. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I wanted to ask specifically with Infinite Galaxies. Yeah. Like I know you've been running one shots at, at the con. Yeah. Um, have you and you've done campaigns as well? Yeah, not at a convention, but oh, yeah. I mean, I have I have players here in Columbus. I'm local to Columbus. I have players here who have played mul multiple sessions of Infinite Galaxies, like as a campaign or as a long running game. Yeah. How is it? What's the difference in field between those? So typically at a, at a convention or one shot, I'm not doing a ton of set a setting building because you just you know it takes away from your time to actually play. Right. So typically at a convention game. I'll say, hey, we're using the default setting, Star Patrol, I'll explain it for like five minutes, and then we'll just go. Mm -hmm. At a longer game, um, I want people to talk about setting. I want people to um, maybe create their own setting, or we can mutually talk about the setting and mm -hmm. say, okay, on the Game Master, here are some ideas I had. What do you guys think, or do you have any that you want to bring in, and let's see if we can make everything work together. Uh, for example, I ran an um, online game through the Gauntlet, uh, in May. Okay. And so I started with the name of it. I said Empire of the Dying Sun. That was the name of the game. Mm -hmm. I had nothing else. So in the first session, I told them, okay, we're going to spend maybe an hour of this first session figuring out about the setting. And yeah. I had some questions that I wrote ahead of time that I would just ask to whomever, because I didn't know what the players were going to pick for sure. their characters, right? So I said, well, here's some interesting questions. But I let them start off. I said, well, what do you guys think this means? And then, so they came up with a bunch of stuff. And I just I made a Google Docs thing, and I just kept updating it when they gave me new info. And so at the end of the game, we have a setting built. Mm -hmm. But we didn't spend the whole session doing that. We spent yeah. like an hour, and then we jumped in. And then as things occurred, if they were setting-related, I'd say, well, what, what does that what mean? Do you, what or what's the name like? of this thing that yeah. you just ran into? Or you said in your backstory you were hunted by the secret military police, who are they? Yeah. So I would occasionally add stuff to it as we went along. So, But in an ongoing game, what I call an ongoing game or a longer game, you, you, you want to have some setting creation. Even if you're going to use the default setting, I think you should still, there's plenty of, even if you use Star Patrol, there's plenty of holes for you to fill in. Mm -hmm. Like there's some stuff set up for you, but it's not like, I, eventually I think I'm going to make a setting thing for it, like a supplement, but there isn't one now. So there's a chapter about it in the book. It talks about the, the setting. If you want to use it, here's some additional details. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, that's okay, too. You can just spend some time. But I would recommend at most spending half of a session. I wouldn't spend more than that, because it's just, sometimes you're going to come up with a lot of stuff you can't use. Right. So just, I would say, a couple hours, move on. Um, but your, your player characters are also part of the setting, and they will their choices, their decisions that they make will influence the setting in some way. Mm -hmm. if, they, if, the robot, if the robot says, I was part of this military organization, well, now you've got a military organization, you need to figure out what it is. Yeah. Is it still around? Is it hunting him? You know, you, you, it gives you questions that you can then ask. Yeah. And I think one of the most important things the GM can do during that period is to ask questions. Yeah. And it's not always like, for example, in my case, I said I wrote like six questions out. Um, but more came up later. I didn't restrict myself to the six questions. Sure. And the six questions were not pointed at anyone in particular when I wrote them. I just said, these are some things I think might be interesting. What is your relationship to the emperor? Mm -hmm. But I didn't know who I was going to ask that of until we played. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I think that's a question for this guy. You know, so um, I think the GM should come to the table with something. Right. Now, it could be, hey, I want to run a Flash Gordon game. Sure. And here's the elements of Flash Gordon. There's Ming the Merciless, there's Flash himself, there's mm -hmm. these planets that we know about, there's Mongo, and there's... Yeah, Arden, and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And so your characters are part of this, and then let's talk about how you fit in. Yeah. But the players may say, I don't really know anything about Flash Gordon, so I'm not really interested in that. But I'm not saying we can't have a kind of a pulpy sort of a game, but maybe we could do X and stuff. Sure. Right? So the Game Master should come in with ideas, but not like concrete, this is what we're doing. Right. Unless the players all tell you, we'll do whatever you want, which they shouldn't do, but they might, right? And now if they're all new, maybe that's just not an option for them. Maybe they're just like, I don't know, I just want to play. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Well, in that case, go for it. Um, otherwise, I think it should be a collaborative thing. I think that the, they should have... So anyway, so an ongoing game, one of the most important things about that is character advancement. Mm -hmm. So I did want to talk a little bit about how that works in Infinite Galaxies and how it's different from a lot of PBTA games. Mm -hmm. um, so um, Infinite Galaxies uses experience, sure. which a lot of games do. Um, not all PBTA games use experience, by the yeah. way. I should point that out. But um, it is pretty common. Um, th this uses... Initially, it used the same advancement system that Dungeon World uses. So Dungeon World uses a system where uh, you get experience points for failing. Mm -hmm. Okay, So if you get a six or less, you fail, but you get experience. So people are like, okay, that's cool. Um, at least there's some... I get something out of failing. Right. Um, so I used that initially because it was part of Dungeon World, and I was at, at that time I was interested in making this very accessible to people because Dungeon World was very popular. It still is. Mm -hmm. I mean, amongst indie gamers, it's popular. But that was one of my design goals. Now I moved away from it, and I'll tell you why. So I played in some games where I wasn't the GM, mm -hmm. and I realized, and also t consulting with some of my longtime players, that that was a very random way to generate experience. That was one of the only ways you could get experience. So, if you happened to get a bunch of 7th or 9s or complete successes, you got almost no XP. Yeah. Whereas somebody who was completely bungling the whole time was getting a ton of XP. And you're like, I wanted the players to have control over, or more control over, when they got experience. Yeah. I felt like if they were... The design intent was to be a fan of the players and also the players drive the action, right? So, what if I came up with a way for them to generate experience in ways they could control? I'm going to drop something in here because I'm, I'm really... I'm very interested in this because when I ran Dungeon World, it was more of an experimental type thing. I remember a very specific session where one player failed like every role they had ended up leveling right. by the next session. Yeah. And another player got a 7 to 9 almost every roll they had and still had to suffer all these consequences yeah. but didn't get the experience. Right. Now, I should point out, there isn't an end-of-session thing in Dungeon World which you do get some experience for. Yeah. So you wouldn't have nothing. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. comparatively speaking, yeah. Um, and I still have that, by the way. Yeah. Um, which I, I think is a great tool. Um, but uh, So, anyway. So... What I came up with was, I thought that it would be great, like I said, to have a way for the players to have more control over how this happens. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was, I, I mentioned that um, Dungeon World has bonds, which are like a phrase, some kind of relationship, or um, an assessment of another character, or whatever. Yeah. Right? And then there's a blank in there, so you write the character's name in there. So... Uh, I, owe, I owe Ed a, play, a favor. Right. Yeah. Or, um, you know, uh, uh, Nixie, the, the fighter, is, uh, is a drunk. Yeah. Or something, whatever, right? So there's different kinds of, of bonds in there. So I thought, I want to have those because people really like those. But I want them to be more meaningful. Mm -hmm. So in Dungeon World, they don't do a lot. Um, in Dungeon World, they're there for role-playing purposes, and then you can resolve them and get XP. 
So if you decide, oh, Nixie's no longer a drunk, I, I've taught her the error of her ways, and she's now going to consume alcohol responsibly, whatever, right? Yeah. You get one XP for it, and it's gone, and then you have to write a whole new bond with Nixie. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting, but in some games it's very hard to do, and there were some bonds that are almost impossible to actually resolve. Sure. Things like, uh, I don't think so-and-so is going to survive the dungeon... Uh, how do you resolve that? Like, yeah. it's just going to... You constantly think that they're always in trouble, but how do you ever resolve that? Like, the Game Master might take pity on you and say, okay, well, they've, they've survived three dungeons. Maybe, you know, you can get rid of that now. But, so what I decided to do was let's make those into something more interesting. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take two things. Number one, we're going to make these things you can definitely know if you did or not. Right? Okay. And the other thing is we're going to tie these directly into the experience system. So... When these things happen, you're going to get XP directly mm -hmm. every time you you guys make it happen. Yeah. Okay? So the way that... Then they're called relationships in Infinite Galaxies. And the way, the way they're written is you have six of them on your sheet. And um, three of them are things you want to do for... Uh, with someone else. Mm -hmm. The other three are things other people are going to do to for with you. Oh, okay. Okay? So there's a balance between the kind of reciprocal, the way they're written. Yeah. Okay? So, so-and-so needs, needs to take me to new places. Okay? So that could be a, that could be a relationship. Or, um, you know, uh, I need so-and-so as a distraction while I do my thing. Mm -hmm. Okay? So those are real relationships that are in the game. Yeah. And they all, all of them have different ones. There's eight playbooks. They all have different, so there are 48 of these in the game. They're all different. Okay. And they're all at least in some way, tied to things that playbook should be doing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the scientist has relationships related to maybe intellect or, you know, uh, building things or modifying things or, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. Sure. So you get XP when you cause those things to happen. And, 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 and they necessarily require somebody else. So mm -hmm. relationship in the game, in order to trigger it, someone else is involved. Yeah. So you might need them to uh, help you learn how to do stuff on the ship. Or you might need them to help you learn secret information. Yeah. Or whatever. Okay. So in addition to that, you have drives. So drives do not exist in Dungeon World at all. They're, they started off as being somewhat similar to alignment, but they've, now they're completely different. So okay. what they do now is this is a more of a personal version of a relationship. So it, it's, it's similar in the sense that you need to do something, mm -hmm. right? But it, it mostly just involves you. It might involve somebody else. It may not. But it might be things like, I need to blow something up. Mm -hmm. Or, I, you know, um, I want to uh, discover secret information. Or I want to infiltrate uh, some, some kind of society. Or some kind of culture, right? And so these are things that you do and you get XP for doing. So, again, you're controlling to a certain extent. Like, you, you, you want to make sure that you're able to make these things happen. And the Game Master takes a back seat in this, the Game Master should be aware that the players have chosen these things, but you're not going to make them happen. You're going to set up a situation where they might happen. Right. So if you know that someone's really interested in infiltrating a, a secret society, there needs to be a secret society, but whether or not they infiltrate, it's not up to you. Yeah. It's, it's, you you're putting them in there so that they, oh, they're a secret society. Okay, I see on my sheet, you know, this thing. But the other thing about the drives is that there's six of them on your sheet, but only two are active at a time. Okay. So another element of this um, advancement system that also ties into this whole kind of the story is the GM will, um, every once in a while, introduce a milestone. So a milestone, um, and I'll write these out on index cards, mm -hmm. it'll be 
uh, infiltrate the pirate base, mm -hmm. or save the princess, or uh, locate the secret archive, or whatever. Like it's a, it's an obvious thing that you'll know whether you did or not, sure. right? So you don't want to say things like, uh, you know, save the forest. Like that's not a thing that you can really like know if you did or not, right? Like it has to be a thing that's a kind of a yes or no. Did we do this thing? Mm -hmm. You know, like steal the section such from the gangster, whatever, right? So it's obvious whether you did or not, right? So when this milestone is introduced in the game, the players will then choose two of their six drives to be active. Okay, so these are the things, and they should choose them based on what the milestone is. Mm -hmm. So this does two things. Number one, it's a mechanical thing in there that you can get XP for resolving, but also you, by putting it on the table as a visual thing, you're letting the players know this is the thing you guys have agreed that you're going to try to do. Yeah. And if it if it's if you have a long running game, it may be important to have that for, to remind them. Mm -hmm. Hey, you guys were trying to do whatever, and by having it on the table, the other players, if they start to meander, they'll realize, oh, okay, yeah. I shouldn't spend 20 minutes screwing around because we're supposed to be doing this thing, yeah. right? So oh, yeah, we're supposed to be saving the princess. Yeah, yeah. Why are we bickering about you know some kind of uh, whatever? So. Um, so those things all tie together. So when you have, and, and then when a new milestone comes out, either because you resolve the old one or sometimes you'll have two at the same time, mm -hmm. then the players can then change the drives they have. Yeah. So they can change, they can always change the ones they have because you might be going from a combat situation into an investigation. So you may not want the same drives. You right. may have some drives that are combat related and some that aren't. And so you have to kind of calculate, well, what are the likelihood I'm going to be doing these things? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, again, the drives are all written to be kind of work with the things that that playbook should be good at. Yeah. So the the combat characters may have things about defeating a, a superior force or you know impressing somebody with a show of force or whatever whatever. Scientists will have like create a modified device or you know. So they all have different you know um, drives, and mm -hmm. so those things all work together. So the that's how you gain XP in the system is by doing those things. So you are making them happen as a player you you should be yeah and so um it's different so not a lot of games do this right and so this is one of the challenges in teaching the game is to remember that you're getting xp for doing these things and not for defeating bad guys i mean you could be if that's your drive right. but it's like in the D, D game most of your xp comes from killing monsters right sure. so that's not how this works so um but the important thing is that you have control mm -hmm. To a certain extent, over it. Um, so usually what I do when I'm teaching the game, and for anybody who's interested in, in playing, um, this is something I would recommend doing um, with new players, is to periodically stop and say, let's let's go back and check to see if you would have gotten XP for anything you did. Yeah. So let's look at your drives and relationships, let's see if any of these situations happen, and then make sure you get XP. Because do not wait till the end. Yeah. Because you'll never remember all the stuff. Yeah. Well, so just maybe after every scene or after whatever... Periodically stop and say, hey guys, I just want to check. And if you're in a lo long running game, like three or four or five sessions, eventually the players will start realizing when they need to do that. Sure. Stuff. On their own, and you'll have to, you, you can stop doing that. But um, the other thing I want to mention um, the difference between a one shot and a long running game. Yeah. When I run a convention game or a one shot, I give out double XP. And okay. the reason I do that is so they can experience more of the advancement system. Sure. So, in my experience, and I've, run, I've play tested this game over 100 times with different people. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've pretty good experience with that. In my experience, you get about one and a half advances per session. So on a one-shot, if I'm doing double XP, you might get three advances, mm -hmm. which, are, which is pretty cool. So an advance is like you can raise one of your abilities, you can get a new move, stuff like that, right? And there's a ton of advances. Each playbook has about 12 advances that are specific to that playbook. 
and they all have things like raising your abilities. Um, you can take moves from other playbooks. So there's a ton of options. Sure. So there's no um, danger of running out of things to do with advances. Um, and the other thing I want to say real quick about advances is advances are not like leveling up. So in a game like D&D, when you're fifth level, yeah, you can't really play with first level characters because you're going to outclass them all the time. Absolutely. And they'll feel threatened by stuff that you are like... <laughs> Whatever, and vice versa. You, you're fighting something that's appropriate for you, and then it gets slaughtered. So, um, Infinite Galaxies is not like that, and PBT games in general aren't like that. Right, but, right. but um, the way I explain it is, your characters in Infinite Galaxies are already pretty competent. Mm -hmm. So you're not going from incompetent to competent. You're going from being pretty competent to having more options. Yeah. So when you take a new move in Infinite Galaxies, it's giving you another option. Like if you're the Jack, who is kind of like the scoundrel, rogue sort of character, mm -hmm. um, you might get the ability to hack computer systems. That's not making you more powerful, but right. it is giving you an option you didn't have because none of the default abilities allow you to do stuff like that. So you're getting a new capability that might make your group be able to do new, new stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like, it's like a horizontal move. It's right. not a vertical. Like, there's not a ton of vertical right. movement. Like, when you raise your stats up, that's a vertical move. But you're limited on how many times you can do that. So there's not a ton of vertical movement. It, it's it's, it's, um, it's the, the, the widening gyre of, of, like, what the where the options lay. Yeah. 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 Um, which is one of those things immediately that's always appealed to me about Powered by Apocalypse is that the, these, the games are meant to you start out competent. That's yeah. That's the, 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 you know, the big yeah. thing. I, I'm, anytime I see the games where people are like, you know, uh, your job, like, Warhammer Fantasy is the classic example yes, of yes. like... Yes, Which I love, by the way. I, I do too. For way different reasons. For way different reasons. Yeah. yeah. It's like, your job is you catch rats. Oh, great. I'm a dung collector. Well, the like, best one is when you roll randomly. Because then, you know, yeah. you could have a group of, like, a judicial champion and a, and a camp follower. <laughs> and you're like, what the hell? Why are these people even together? Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> like, why are they hanging out? But, yeah, um... Yeah. But like, you know, but but there's something about having a, the option out there to run games where you start out and you're Han Solo. Yeah. You right. know, you're 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 Mal Reynolds. You know, you 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 yeah. can be good at something. Yeah. So. Well, um, the other thing too is like, let's say you, uh, if you're familiar with the Star Wars game, the Fantasy Flight mm -hmm. one, right? Like they build out a bunch of these NPCs. Mm -hmm. And they're way better than your character can yeah. be. Like, ever, maybe. Like, even if you played for a long time, you're probably never going to be as good as this guy. In a Power by the Apocalypse game, certainly in Infinite Galaxies, you can imagine your character kind of being like some of those characters. And, and the game mechanics don't prevent you from feeling that way. Right. Like, if you decide your character, you're basically going to play Han Solo and just kind of change the name and whatever, you could do that. I mean, there's nothing stopping you. Sure. And... You know, you can have a gun, and you can shoot your gun, and you can fly your ship, and you can do all these things. And the great thing about the way the system is designed for, especially in terms of, like, ship stuff, so I'm going to back up a little bit. So a lot of sci-fi games, the stuff that happens in the ships mm -hmm. is, like, separated or different or, like, a whole different subsystem or whatever, right? right? So Infinite Galaxies, the, the, anything aboard the ship is, is exactly the same as other stuff. So when you, when you do, when you shoot the guns on the ship, it's the same basic idea is when you shoot your laser gun at a bad guy. Mm -hmm. Like, so the mechanics of the moves are slightly different just because they kind of have to be, right? But um, it, it still is roll plus a stat. It's that, that part's all the same. And so you can totally have a running ship battle 
-hmm. and then a combat inside the ship with people. And you can have that happening at the same time, and it's seamless. There's no having to think about different systems. It's the same deal, right? Ships have hull, which works just like people's vitality. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. Ships have shields, which works just like armor for people. It works exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, ships have a damage die. People have a damage die. So all of those things are the same. The ships have their stats. People have stats. They're different stats, obviously. Right. But it works the same way. Yeah. So you don't have to shift your thinking about, what do I do when I'm on the ship? Or, my character is useless on the ship. Yeah. I can't do anything. Like, that's not happening. Even the code, like even the games that have somehow managed... The sci- at least in my experience, even the sci-fi games that have somehow managed to like, okay, everybody has a thing to do in this ship-to-ship system. It's a different. It ends up being a different system so yeah. often. Yeah. And it's nice to, and I, I mean, again, PBTA, you know, because things are more narrative, you do that kind of thing. You, yeah. You can use the same system yeah. for that. So in, in Infinite Galaxies, there are ship moves, mm-hmm. right? And they use the ship stats. So when you want to fire the guns, if you're a Psy, mm-hmm. and you're not... You're, you may be a combat character, but it's not assumed that your character knows anything about ships. Sure. You can still just jump on the guns like Luke Skywalker in A New Hope. Yeah. And he is at least somewhat decent with the guns. Yeah. And that's the intention, is I don't want to have any of the player characters think, I, because I'm this kind of a character, I can't help on the ship. Mm-hmm. Because... The worst thing that can happen is your characters get on the ship and half the party can't do anything. Right. Or like, uh, I, you know. So you can do all your normal moves if you want, if they make sense. Like I had a telekinetic fling asteroids using telekinesis out of the ship. Why not? Why not? There's nothing in the move that says you can't do that. Yeah. Um, there's restrictions on certain things, but it's mostly narrative, like I said, you know. And so if it makes sense, yeah, why not? Yeah. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just I don't like games where that's the design. It's like, yeah. well, these are ship characters and they do cool stuff on the ship. Yeah, you know, unless you want to have like a like a uh, a troop system where you have maybe like you switch to characters that are good on the ship and your character goes away for a little while. That's, that's exactly okay. how I resolved that issue years ago. Yeah, but I don't want to have player characters literally sitting there doing nothing. Yeah, and I play games like that. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. And so you do one of two things: you either Shorten the ship stuff, mm-hmm. which may not be that fun. Maybe people want to do that. Or, like I said, you have people sitting there doing nothing. Yeah. So, neither one of them are, are great options. Yeah. So. It's, I'm, um, I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to get your game. <laughs> Especially after uh, we've been talking um, most of, like, almost 24 hours. Right, right. <laughs> I feel. But, um, uh, I, now, we're, so... It's at, at print uh, shortly, right? Yeah, so right now it's in layout. Okay. So all the writing's done, all the art's done, we've, we've, we've paid people, so it's, it's for the most part done. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in layout, so I have a, a graphic uh, designer who was doing the layout. He did uh, The Sprawl, okay. if you're familiar oh, yeah. with that. Oh, Sprawl's a great game, like, yeah. great layout. Oh, and yeah. I've seen what he's, do- I've seen some proofs of my book, and it looks awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, it is going to be print-on-demand. Okay. So if you're getting a physical book, if you've already kickstarted it and you back to the level where you get a physical book, what's going to happen is you're going to get a coupon mm-hmm. that I'm basically paying for out of the Kickstarter money. Right. Um, or whatever shipping costs you've paid me, because I did charge separately for shipping, um, that you just basically send to um, a drive-thru, yeah. RPG, and then you get a book printed. 
and they have a printer in the U.S. and they have a printer in England. So okay. if you're overseas, you can use the U the England, you know, the printer in England and get mm -hmm. your books. That's a little cheaper for the people. Cheaper. Yeah. Um, otherwise, there's a PDF that'll be out. The PDF I'm sure will be out before the print book because oh, it's yeah. a different. I mean, he uses the PDF, but it certain things have to be a little different for the print mm -hmm. version. So the only thing left for me is I'm proof it when I get the whole thing, just to look for any kind of last minute things. But I've already I had a professional editor. Um, she has edited multiple books, including her most recent work, I believe, was on a game called Red Markets, which oh, was a I've zombie yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of a weird, but it's like from an economics yeah. slant. It's like a zombie apocalypse, but like you're not fighting off zombies. You're it's it's almost like resource management. Yeah, right. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And she has a podcast called Technical Difficulties, which I appeared on and ran my game. I've actually ran my game on a couple of different podcasts, okay. like as an actual play, like a very short. Like, I was on Plus One Four. That was, like, a 10-minute version yeah. of my game. But I've actually ran full uh, <coughs> game sessions, too. So, um, and I've got uh, stuff on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So if anyone's interested, um, they can go to my YouTube channel. I've got actual play videos that you can watch from the Very gauntlet. Cool. Um, all, of, all of which will be linked in the show notes. Cool, okay. For, for both of these episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So there's... there's it, all of this stuff is downloadable um, from the website, infinitegalaxies.net. Um, now, the stuff that's there now are not the final versions. They're mm -hmm. stuff that I made just for people to play. Yeah. So they're not the professionally designed. They were done in, like, Microsoft Word. And they look okay, but they're not as awesome as the final versions will be. And I've seen some of the final versions. They look pretty cool. So Sometimes it's like, this is usable. This isn't what the final thing was. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that's, no, that's, that's where we're at. And I'm... I haven't bugged him about some of the character sheet stuff because I want him to finish the book. Yeah, yeah. So the final version of the sheets and stuff may come out after the book. Yeah. Um, just because I want him to focus on getting the book done. But uh, and it'll be for sale at um, IPR. Okay. Um, I have a friend who's been helping me on this book who sold his book through IPR, so he's going to help me get that done. Cool. I, and I know Jim Crocker. I mean, you know, so I'll I'll be able to get it done. And I've are got. You, are you going to do like drive-through or anything like it'll that? It'll be on drive-through. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But I'll. What I'll do for like cons, like Origins and Gen Con and stuff, I'll send IPR like some copies. Oh, okay. So if people want to buy it from there, oh, they very can. Cool. Yeah. And they get a free PDF with it, too. That's, that's so perfect. The PDF, I don't know how much it's going to be or anything. Um, I know how much I charge for the Kickstarter, but I don't think... Because part of that is like you're financially backing the game because you like it. Right. Like, I don't feel like that should be the price. I don't know. I haven't talked about that yet, but it'll yeah. be reasonable. Um, it's a big book, though. It's going to be 300 so oh, pages. That's so good. So I mean, it's going to be like a five dollar PDF, probably. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm just yeah, warning yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I charge charge it what you feel it's worth. Yeah. I, that's what I always say. Yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm excited to check it out. I'm excited to play it. Um, I'm glad that we've met. Yeah. And and hung out. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that we've gotten the interview in. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, social media, uh, Twitter. Do you want to? Are you on yeah, I, so when I was doing the Kickstarter campaign, I had a, a specific Twitter account for Infinite Galaxies, but I don't really use that anymore. Yeah. So if you want to get me on Twitter, it'd be at RoryM614. Okay. Um, there is a Facebook group for Infinite Galaxies, which okay. has occasional updates. So you just search for Infinite Galaxies on Facebook. I'm sure you'll find it. Yeah. Um, there's the website. It has a newsletter, which I haven't used yet, but I think post-production I'll probably start sending out. Start playing right now I'm mostly using the... Kickstarter's kind of update system because yeah. most of my people interested in the game kick kickstarted it so I just communicate with them that way but after the Kickstarter's after everything's done I'll probably start using the newsletter more mm -hmm. so it's like a MailChimp it's oh, like a oh, newsletter yeah, yeah, yeah. and so mm -hmm. you can just sign up for that if you want um, yeah so those are the best ways to get a hold of me well and um, I'm sh also sure that when everything's kind of done you'll 
Breathe a sigh of relief. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, any thoughts on, on what's next? So, um, I'm definitely working on something that's not Infinite Galaxies for a while. Okay. And then, I, my plan is to eventually return to it. I have um, some ideas of some supplements I'd like to do. Mm -hmm. For example, I'd really like to expand on the Psionics. So, mm -hmm. right now, the Psy has, there's only so many moves I could fit. Because it's, it's a, it's a two-sided like playbook. It's one sheet. And yeah. so, there's just only so much crap I could fit. But Psionics has so many possibilities. Sure. So, I'm going to do a, like a 30-peg supplement on Psionics. Which is going to have new playbooks, new moves, new equipment, mm -hmm. maybe some new origins. I don't know. Whatever. So um, I had an idea for some more gear. Mm -hmm. So maybe a, a, a book, uh, you know, again, a 30-page supplement that will have gear, new weapons, new robot options. Um, I'm thinking of maybe battle mechs. Ooh. And the battle mech would be a playbook like the ship. Okay. So it would work like a ship. And it would be very similar to a ship. Yeah. I also thought of maybe doing a setting, like a Battletech sort of a setting, where people have mechs. Everyone, like all the PCs would have mechs. Yeah. And so the challenge there is coming up with different kinds right. of mechs, right? But they'd all be playbooks that you could customize. The thing with the ship is it's a playbook, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if I explained that, but the ship, the, the Ace gets, is a playbook. You, yeah, you did. And it can be customized, and it can advance. Yeah. Like, it's like a character, right? Okay. So the idea of these mechs would be similar. So they'd have... Same idea, Packages yeah. and moves and everything else. That's cool. Um, and then in Star Patrol okay. supplement. So again, these are all kind of 30-page 30, 30 you know, kind of things. So, um, and each of these would have a sampling of some either alternate versions of existing playbooks or new moves for existing playbooks. You know, stuff like that. Mm. Um, so, uh, so that's probably the next thing for Infinite Galaxies. I thought maybe I might do some fiction for it. I, I may still do some fiction for it. I don't know yet. Um, but in terms of the very next thing I'm going to do, I'm either going to write a novel or uh, not Infinite Galaxy, just something else. Uh, or I might. I have an idea for a new game system, which I might do. Okay. And if I do do that, there will be a second version of Infinite, like a second edition that will use this new we'll thing because I like it. Yeah. And I don't want to talk too much about it yet. That's weird. Uh, but. I, I'm I'm kind of tempted to do something completely different, mm -hmm. like writing a novel, which I've already done a ton of research for. So I'm like, I should probably do something with all that time <laughs> I spent on it. Um, but the enticement of game design is like, once an idea starts rolling, yeah. Sometimes you just kind of have to see it through. You have to you have to you have to take it to the point where it stops on its own, right? And then if that point isn't a place where you can make a game, yeah, you have to step away from it until then you get that inspiration. That's how, what I found. It. Well, I will tell you a funny story about that real quick. So for Infinite Galaxies, when I was writing it originally, um, this, is, this is probably right before I had any playbooks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I knew I was going to need playbooks, and I, I had an idea, like, because I was basing it on Star Trek originally, right? So I'm like, well, okay, so there's, like, you, you think about, like, the bridge crew. Sure. You have, like, engineering folks, you have security folks, you have the navigation people, you have, like, the science people, and then you have command people like Kirk and stuff, right? I thought, well, those might be interesting, you know, as playbooks, right? But how different are they? Like, in a lot of cases, they're very similar, right? Yeah. They have a couple things that are different about them. So, the brain started rolling, and I was about to go to sleep one night, and all of a sudden, I could not stop thinking about having a robot having a soldier, yeah. having a sneaky sort of a character, and I'm like, 
And then, of course, that turned into, well, now I'm not going to just do Star Trek. Now I'm going to expand this to any kind of sci-fi. Yeah. But sometimes you get inspiration at really inopportune times. Oh, 100%. So I had to get up yeah. and spend two hours at least fleshing out what are these playbooks. Yep. Coming up with names because mm -hmm. the names of the playbooks are so important. Mm -hmm. Because when I'm, handing, when I'm passing out playbooks to new people, that name has to tell them something. Yeah. You know? Has to tell part of the story. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, why should I play this thing? You know? And so I find that a really interesting... Like I said, uh, the magic of language in, in, in game design is so important. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, fantastic. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited. I, um, yeah, I, I, I'm excited to see... I'm, I'm excited to play around with it myself, you know? Yeah. In my head, I'm like... You know, like, like you know, I, there's a. I, I, I want to say to my group, okay, we're gonna play Infinite Galaxies. I'm calling this scenario a bunch of a holes. Yeah. You know what this is about. Yeah. <laughs> you are the guardian. You're, you know, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely want other people to run it. I mean, yeah. I, I know other people are running it, but mm -hmm. I don't. Like, I only have a little bit of first-hand experience with other people running. Like, I've asked some friends of mine who are very familiar with the system to give it a try. Yeah. But uh, not much. I mean, I'd say of the hundred times I've played it. Like ninety nine percent were me, yeah. so I, I really and I'd like to get feedback from people too. Yeah, well, it's a little late for me to change anything in the book, but at least so I could be aware of this thing is confusing to people or whatever, right? Yeah, because it's easy when I'm explaining everything. I'm the one who created it. That's what errata releases are for. Right, right. <laughs> and it's great to deal with digital stuff because you know there you, there you go. Other than so. the poor saps that already printed it off. Yeah. <laughs> like for example, sometimes. You buy the print versions of books that are really expensive, and they're like, oh, there's a new system. We're going to do a whole new version of this. Yeah. Um, but we'll, we'll, we could talk about that at another time. Because, <laughs> Rory, I'd love to have you back on at some point. Yeah. Really, for any reason. Yeah. Um, That's a lot I, of fun. I can do this long distance. Yeah. Um, if we're at, at a con, I will sit down with you. Yeah. No matter what. We have so much in common that I think we, we, we kind of have to. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> maybe we should have our own podcast. Or this isn't a... I know. Maybe we, <laughs> maybe should. we should. Maybe we Talk should. Talk about really nerdy stuff. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I've, I've joked... I've never said this in recording before. I've joked about doing my own podcast that is ostensibly about the character of Doc Palindrome's sidekick. Um, because the sidekick is Doc Palindrome's subordinalap cod. Oh. The opposite of a, a subordinalap is a palindrome that means a dip, that spells a different word backwards. Gotcha. Okay. And it's just ba palindromes backwards. Ah. Okay. So, um, so who knows? I, I'm I'm not opposed to doing something like that. It may be a little ways down the road, <laughs> but um, but this has been a blast. All right, man. Um, I'm I'm glad you've been on. Uh, I'm glad we've been able to hang out. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, oh, since uh, I forgot to do this yesterday, um, I always tell my lounge lizards out there to stay classy. All right. Do you want to do the honors? Stay classy, lounge lizards. Beautiful. <laughs>
let it go, right? Anyways, go check out Infinite Galaxies at infinitegalaxies.net. It is for sale on DriveThru right now. I cannot recommend it enough. Pretty awesome. Rory is on Twitter as RoryM614. That's M as in Mary. You know. And while you're at it, go check out Command Droids on Kickstarter right now. Just a few days left on that, so get in. Let's get that going. Take it away, hot stuff. The Lounge is a misdirected Mark production. The media arm of Encoded Design with lots of great shows like this one. Panda's Talking Games. Phil and Senda answer your questions about RPGs from the perspective of one-shots and campaigns with some Panda silliness. The Lounge Theme and So It Begins by Artificial Music is used under Creative Commons 3.0. Support Contessa at Contessa.rock. Find your host, Jesse Doc Admin at Doc Palindrome on Twitter. All the links from this episode can be found in the episode description. Stay classy, lounge lizards. <laughs>